direct from both Eternia and Etheria. From deep within the confines of Castle Grayskull, it's time to join in the battle for the power of goodness with Chris Vint and the Masters of the Universe Chronicles. Welcome to another edition of the Masters Universe Chronicles. Uh, this is March's edition. Uh, normally I just do this introduction by myself and uh, just waffle on about the various figures and stuff. But because last month twice I had one of my guests, Roboto, on the show, I thought it was only fair that I asked TJ Green, uh, who does the fan uh, contribution part of the show. He does the character profiles. I thought it was only fair for him to come on the show and uh, let his voice be heard. So, uh Welcome, TJ. It's uh, nice to have you on and uh, have a little chat with you before we go into your character profiles and all that shenanigans. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be on. No problem. We're going to go over uh, some of the figures that are going to be uh, released this month. Um, obviously, last month uh, was a bit of a disaster with Battle Cat and Trapjaw, so if you were lucky to get one or more than that, then um, hats off to you. Uh, didn't expect them to go as fast as they did, didn't expect all the problems that Mattel and Digital River had, but hopefully this will not be the case this month. Uh, with Mossman, two Mossman being released, one with uh, unflocked ears and one with flocked ears. So if you're in the club attorney subscription, the unflocked ears are the ones that you'll be getting. There's also a reissue of Stratos. TJ, what are your thoughts on these figures? Well, first off, I really like enjoy the, the detail that goes into all these figures. I mean, back when I was a kid, you know, playing with like the the old He-Man or Skeletor figures in the Castle Grey Skull set, I you know, I liked them. But as a collector now, I find that you tend to compare a lot of the nuances, so to speak, with, with, the, with the figures and pay attention to things that you remembered back to when you were a kid, like either watching the TV series or, like, like I mentioned before, you know, playing with the old line. So, you know, I just love the fact of, you know, the coloration and how they really pay attention to details by by the line, I guess you could say. Okay, okay. And do you like the fact that Mossman also smells of pine again? <laughs> yes, indeed. That was definitely one of my uh, my favorite uh, things to <laughs> figure out. Yeah, with Pixel Dan saying that even whenever he opened the box, that he had a fair whiff of pine and was quite overpowering. I'm kind of concerned as whenever we get Stinkor and we're going to get a really bad smell seeping out of the box. That's not oh, pleasant. Oh, no, 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 Stinkor. Oh. Yeah. I still, I, I think of him as like the complete abomination of Masters of the Universe. I really do. No, for me it's Rio Blast, but uh, anyway, moving on. Uh, <laughs> so uh, this month we have quite a lot of contributions to the show by fans. Um, so I'll just go for a couple of them. Buster Tunes returns again um, with his Par and the Honor 10 Facts of the Month. So will he actually get 10 or will he get more than 4 than he did last month? And after Roboto's hiatus um, from doing interviews. He's actually back with a attorney-based interview. That's all I'm going to divulge at this uh, juncture. 
then we have a couple of new additions to the show. We have Josh Ginter, who goes by Bullen on the HeMan.org forums. And he has a section called Masters, Masters Memories Moments, wherever he discusses with fans who you can get, he can get in touch with um, Josh via Skype on his username is Bullen1. He discusses with fans uh, their memories of Masters of the Universe, so he's got a very special interview this month lined up. And then last we have uh, Jason Lennox, who uh, really compares all the evil factions of Masters of the Universe slash Princess of Power. So he go- uh, discusses Skeletor and his evil henchmen. He discusses Hordak and his evil horde and King Hiss and the Snake Men. Oh, and I forgot that uh, TJ Green also has a couple of character profiles. So, TJ, who are you uh, profiling this month, then? For March, I'm uh, profiling uh, Moss Man Mm -hmm. and Man at Arms. Man at Arms, awesome. And uh, do you have a couple lined up for April, then? Ah, April's definitely the fun one. Uh, Don't be telling anyone. I don't want any... I don't want anyone to know what they are. Just keep it close to your chest. And, okay. Uh, and you can unveil it maybe next month again. Um, but uh, speaking of next month, this rules me on nicely to um, who is actually going to be on the Easter show. So sit back, listen, take a deep breath, and hear who is on April's show. Hi, this is Larry Dottilio. You're listening to Chris Vint with the Masters of the Universe Chronicles. Thanks for listening. So, TJ... Uh, happy that Larry Dottilio is is being interviewed and appearing on the Chronicles podcast then. I am so excited for Larry to be on the show. It's not even funny. Um, <laughs> I came across him uh, a couple of times when he was doing the, uh, the stuff for uh, San Diego Comic Con, and he was just a pleasant, pleasant fellow to talk to. So I really can't wait to find out uh, everything he had to say about uh, masters and, and Princess of Power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, it was a pleasure talking to to Larry. Um, I've I've done so many interviews now that uh, Larry Tatelio and Lou Simer for me were the holy grail, and to get one of them on the show, you know, here's hoping I can get Mr. Simer, but um, I think he's going to be a harder one to get. But uh, having Larry on the show was just an absolute joy. Speaking of joys, uh, this month's show has Dean Stefan on it. Now, TJ, I don't know whether you were aware, but uh, whenever we were talking on Facebook, uh, he sent me a question to do with, oh, if you're talking to Dean Stefan, you can have um, have him answer this question to do with uh, The Last Stand, if you remember. Oh, yeah, The Last Stand. One of my uh, all-time favorite Mike Young episodes. Yeah, uh, I remembered the question too. <laughs> yeah, well, he actually answered your question, so he did. So uh, make sure you stay tuned for that there, and you listen to what uh, how he divulges the answer to your question and talks about some of the things like uh, what was going to happen in season three, um, things like that, and why um, why a certain character talked the way they talked. I'm sure you know what I mean by that, anyway. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Uh, do you want to actually introduce yourself uh, with, um, just say, it's over to me now, TJ Green with, and whoever you're um, reviewing this month then? Uh, all right. Uh, my name is uh, TJ Green. I was formerly uh, Prince Adam 23 on the He-Man.org message boards. Um, and 
my profiles for the month are Man at Arms and Mossman. TJ, it's been fun talking to you, so now we're going to cut over to... We're actually going to take a short break from me talking and you talking to listen to you talk about your character profile. So thanks for coming on and thanks for contributing to the show and being a loyal supporter of the Chronicles podcast. It's uh, it's nice to have fans like yourself. Thanks. And just uh, as a you know, last-ditch thing, just want to plug uh, our Facebook pages, you know? <laughs> Go on ahead there. Always time um, for a plug. Well, we... You know, we both have our uh, our Facebook pages, and uh, part of you know me being a huge fan was uh, creating what's called uh, uh, TJ Green's uh, He Man and Shira group page, and you're actually an admin on that, and so is uh, Busta Tunes. Yes, I'm um, indeed uh, good old Busta Tunes. With um, obviously, I have to mention Serial Geek uh, with the new poster. Have you seen the new poster that um, that you can purchase? Oh, yes, I am so dying to get it. It looks amazing. Yeah, just a nice segue that uh, you can go over to SerialGeek.com and uh, there's a limited run of a Shira poster. It uh, looks fantastic. I've already ordered mine. And while TJ's mentioned his uh, Facebook page, I shall mention mine, which is the Master of the Universe Chronicles. Uh, normally just post there. Uh, if you're fine, you can post uh, what memories you have or what you'd like to see in the show, that kind of thing. So, yeah, just type in Master of the, of the Universe Chronicles in the Facebook or TJ Green's He-Man and She-Ra group and uh, join it and let us hear your thoughts. But again, TJ, thanks very much and uh, speak to you next month, no doubt. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I look forward to being back on again. No problem. Thanks now. And uh, over to TJ Green with his Mossman and Man-at-Arms character profiles. And now it's the fan contributors part of the show. I am TJ, Prince of Unspalls and Keeper of the Knowledge of Character Profiles. I'm here once again at the request of the Keeper of the Chronicles, Chris Vint, to entertain you with the profiles of two Masters of the Universe characters that have made appearances as figures and as cartoon legends. In this, the month of March, I profile Mossman and one of the more famous of the Masters, Duncan, the resident man-at-arms. Once again, we come to a case where both of these supporting characters appeared in both the Filmation and the Mike Young Productions cartoon Incarnations. We begin the first portion by profiling Mossman. Who are you? Most folks call me Mossman. I sensed an upheaval in the plant world. Figured I'd better have a look. Don't like this at all. This is a case where the character looks tended to be almost the exact same between shows. He's a big, strong, muscular, furry green creature. You almost tend to think he acts like an Ent from the book series The Lord of the Rings. Uh, mysterious in the shadows or, you know, the background, but offering help at just the right places and offers wise advice. In the Mike Young Productions show, actually, Orko seeks out Mossman for his, his garden, 
but ends up being deceived by evil seed. Uh, Mossman could control the, the blooming of plants and, and greenery, but in a positive way. His counterpart, evil seed, used the plants for darker agendas. In the end of that episode, Mossman actually assists He-Man, so he saves the day. Next, we go to the more prominently known of these supporting masters, the good old trusty Duncan, the resident man-at-arms. Teela, you've disobeyed my orders. But, Father... You shouldn't have disobeyed, Teela, but thank you. We'll discuss this later. Now Battle Cat and Stratos are Elmora's prisoners. We've got to find a way to break Skeletor's spell. Now, this is not to be confused with Man-E-Faces. Same kind of name base, you know, Man-At-Arms, Man-E-Faces, but two totally different looks and mannerisms. Man-At-Arms was the inventing genius of Eternia. He was the one to look for when you needed a, a gadget or a rather unnecessary robotic horse. Stridor! <clears throat> he was a skilled warrior in combat, but always had the wisdom to notice when not to use his fighting skills. He always fought best using diplomacy or logic and truth. Man-at-Arms clothed himself in an orange colored armor of sorts with a gray metal helmet. He was only one of four who knew uh, He-Man's secret identity as uh, uh, Prince Adam. Adora, Orko, and the Sorceress also had this knowledge. You could say Duncan was like an uncle to Prince Adam, a more serious confidant on which Adam or He-Man, could turn to if in trouble or need of advice. Those qualities tended to get enforced more in the Mike Young Productions incarnation, although you saw deeper emotional sides to Duncan. He tended to analyze himself and his flaws. You saw his joys and pains as, you know, a character. He developed, he deepened. He appears in almost all episodes in both the Filmation and the Mike Young Productions incarnations. So on this one, I won't give a top five appearance. You'll need to see them all to really pinpoint, you know, Duncan, or as we best know him, the man at arms. As always, keep an eye on Facebook, on TJ Green's He-Man and Sheer. Facebook group page for a place to express your passion for, you know, MOTU and, and POP, um, as well as you can express your love for characters like Man-at-Arms. What could it possibly want with that old ruin? No idea. Let's just be glad we won't have civilians to worry. Kila! Father! Are you all right? Listen carefully. You cannot let that creature reach Grayskull. If the castle is in the slightest danger of being breached, you must destroy the beast. I can't do that. You and He-Man would Kila, be... 
Do as I say. As well as new vidcasts you won't see anywhere else. Now I give you back to the keeper of the Masters of the Universe Chronicles, Chris Vint. Good journey. Okay, so after last month's uh, first shot, Power and Honor Facts of the Month, 10 facts by James Bustatoon's eTalk in a minute. Unfortunately, last month, as you probably already heard, he came up with four, so that's not even half. I expect better from Mr. eTalk, who's on the phone now. Mr. eTalk, do you have anything to say about your poor performance last month? I, I, I hang my head in shame. Um, I've clearly lost the mantle I once held. Um, I'm going to do better this month, though. I think I know the way to go. I'm in the zone. It's all good. As long as it's not Hordak is cool, Skeletal Rocks, anything like that, that's not... <laughs> they are facts, but uh, facts that we already know. <laughs> so are you ready to rock and roll then, sir? Yeah, let's do this. Okay. Ready, go. In the DC Comics, originally Prince Adam and Cringer transform into their other selves, had to run into the Cave of Power, where they were transformed into He-Man and Battlecat by the Goddess. Also, in um, the UK annual and certain early other canons, uh, to transform into He-Man, Prince Adam would have to strike his sword against stone for some reason. Uh, as many, oh, as quite a few people know, Strauss was originally planned as an evil character, and in one of the earliest episodes of the cartoon, he was originally an evil villain, and then they scrapped the episode. In the mini-comic Leech, the master of power suction unleashed, Merman has a red face and a beard. Don't ask. Caster Speller in the UK Ladybird books was a bad girl, as it were, because Catra was always trying to ruin Adora's birthday parties, etc. The early design of the sorceress in the series guide had her with purple skin and a blue hooded cape, which was very odd. And the original design for Panther had him as a black panther with purple armour, including a battle cat-like helmet. Stop. Oh. <sighs> so, how did I do? So how many do you think? Oh, I'm going to go for six. Well, seven. Well, seven. seven? Seven. Oh, quite happy with that. Yeah, Thanks well, for listening, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was James E. Talk with the par and the honour facts of the month. So tune in next month to see how he fares. Will he ever get ten? And if he does, will he get a prize? <laughs> I sincerely doubt it. But anyway, you can keep trying. Thank you very much, James. Bye-bye. Thank you, buddy. Hey, guys. It's Roboto. I'm back here on Eternia this month with probably my very biggest interview to date. Yes, I am going to interview the main man himself, He-Man. You know, like the most powerful man in the universe. That guy? Yeah. Been emailing with him. He's agreed to have an interview with me inside Castle Grayskull. Needless to say, I am very excited. I arrived here just moments ago and have met up with Orko as arranged. Orko, what do you say? Can we go to Castle Grayskull now? Your wish is my command. Wow. 
Here we are, standing in front of Castle Grayskull. Man, this is so awesome. I wish you guys were here right now. Dude, it's like huge and scary. I gotta tell you, if I was a little kid standing here, I'd be wetting my pants at this very moment. The, look, Orko, look, the drawbridge, it's opening. Well, well, look who's here. Hey, man, wow, it's really you. This is incredible. Thank you so much for your time today. Put your battle ram in high gear and head back home. Go back home? What? Come on, Battle Cat. We're about to clean house. What? You promised me we would go inside Castle Grayskull. I, I would just have five minutes of your time. You promised. Today I broke a promise. <laughs> there it is. Castle Grayskull. Oh no, Skeletor. Wait. Oh, wait, He-Man, so that, that's why you're canceling the interview today, right? Because you, you have to go fight old Boneface? More or less. Wait, hold on, before you go running off. When, when should I come back? I still want this interview, man. I understand. Well, good. Thank you for uh, seeing my side here. Okay, so uh, when exactly should I come back? Then we'll leave it to you and Arco. Tila, man at arms, let's go see Skeletor. Well, fans, uh, sorry about that, but uh, apparently He-Man is just too busy right now defending Castle Grayskull from the forces of evil. As for me... What about you? Orko, I have to use the Cosmic Key and disappear back home now. Please don't disappear. I've got to get back, Orko. I've got to be at work in like a half an hour. Okay, fans, that's going to wrap it up. Sorry, no He-Man interview this month. Hopefully we can reschedule for next month. In the meantime, keep sending those voicemails to Chris Vince Snake Mountain Address. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you want to hear. Okie dokie. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Master's Memories Moments. Hello all, and welcome to a new segment of Masters of the Universe Chronicles uh, called Master's Memories Moments, in which fans can talk about their memories of the beloved He-Man and Masters of the Universe, either with the toys or the cartoons. I'm your host, Balloon, a.k.a. Josh, and I'd like to thank Chris for the opportunity to do this segment. Um, today's guest is actually Chris. Since he gave me the job, we're going to, um, we're going to dissect him today. So, Chris, thank you for being on the show. I feel like a frog that I'm yeah. going to be dissected. I give you a job, and you're going to, yeah, we're going to dissect him. But, no, it was nice of you to actually approach me, and uh, me sitting in an interview chair actually being asked questions rather than me asking the questions. But uh, thank you for taking the time to interview me, and uh, I know you'll do a good job interviewing other people, and I always like hearing other people's memories about the Masters Universe stuff. Excellent. Hopefully, uh, so hopefully the listeners will enjoy it as well. Um, the better. <laughs> we're gonna just kind of crack on with the questions, and pretty much, question of the day is, uh, what is your earliest memory of the toys and cartoons? 
should I tell you a tragic story then? Um, I don't know. Should we do the tragic story first or the good one first? Or are they both tragic? Uh, well, I have several tragic stories, but my <laughs> earliest memory... My earliest memory would be me and down in a caravan in lovely Northern Ireland, if there is such a place, um, with uh, He-Man and Battle Cat and sporting some funky 1980s shades as the, you know, six, seven-year-olds used to do around about that time. Um, just remember, you know, getting figures for Christmas, getting like Snake Mountain and using the voice changer thing, which you liked whenever you were a kid, but now whenever you're adult, if you were to have... A kid with that, you'd be like, that is so annoying and so just really, really bad. But just loving the cartoon, coming home from school, watching the cartoon, eating my dinner, things like that. Whereas now I can kind of do the same thing, but uh, obviously unsupervised um, at the best of times anyway. Um, but no, it's, it's nice to relive the youth and uh, a lot of people seem to like the show and seem to like watching it. So I'm one of those people. Um, any particular uh, memory that pops out, or? Well, this is going to be the tragic stories then. Okay. Uh, the first story was that um, whenever I was a child, I had uh, trap jaw, and as everyone knows, trap jaw came with a couple of um, little attachments for his arm. Uh, upon going to the shopping center with mother uh, to get the local weekly shop in, you know, what kids are like, they're bored of their skulls, so I thought, I'll bring Trapjaw along, have a bit of fun, you know, just play with action figure and stuff. So whenever we sat down to have a tin of Coke or whatever, a moment or ten cups of coffee a day, um, <laughs> I I decided, um, right, I'll play with Trapjaw, set his parts there, and then whenever we went, I left his parts behind didn't notice until I got home so said to mom about it and she went right, well we'll go back tomorrow and see if they were handed in or anything so upon switching the radio on the next day to hear the news the shopping centre had been burnt to the ground <laughs> so obviously this means that Trap Jaws parts were burnt to the ground as well uh, as good as Mattel were at making things, I don't think they made any fireproof uh, attachments or anything. Could be wrong, but didn't really want to go and get that out. Uh, but uh, Trapjaw was at home with me. I was at home, so the two are totally unrelated. And at no time did we set fire to the shopping centre, which will remain nameless. Uh, <laughs> Another tragic story I have was, let's see, I must have been 1982, I must have, well, 1982-83, I must have been about five. So after watching He-Man and seeing He-Man with his sword that could withstand fire, withstand, you know, throw the other side of a gorge, actually use rope and pull it across, uh, smart Alec Chris decided it'd be fun to set his uh, funky coloured power sword that was one half brown and one half kind of a yellowy colour, if you remember it. Uh-huh. Yes, uh, I decided to set it on the middle of the road, so then a big, massive uh, lorry came round, and needless to say, the sword uh, kind of crumbled and wasn't really made of the same material that He-Man's stuff was, so I learned that the hard way. <laughs> uh, so between Trap Jaws, parts melting, and 
Numpty setting the thing in the middle of the road with it uh, smashing in a million pieces. Uh, even if I was to go to the the firsts and try and get it uh, put back together as Shira did, I don't think that would have ever happened. Yeah, <laughs> that's quite just funny. Some, yeah, just some tragic stories that I have, you know. Well, do you have any um, not so tragic stories? Uh, if you remember. Yeah, well, uh, whenever you're a kid, obviously you have quite a lot of friends in your neighborhood, um, so you're able to play um, action figures, you know, with them. Uh, I remember that whenever I, whenever I lived in the first house, um, there was like a fence that led to the back of my school, so it just meant that I could come home at lunchtime, get my E-Man figures, and people could play with them, you know, in the back garden or whatever or uh, there was a guy a couple of uh, doors up the road that we used to play you know figures together uh, remember having actually a big massive bag of them that actually had Thundercats figures in it as well at one stage and then mothers being mothers decided you don't play with toys anymore we're going to give them to the homeless homeless are probably raking it in right about now while <laughs> I'm you know struggling to make hands meet but uh, you know if that if that helped people you know if Whenever I wasn't playing with them, that give other people some enjoyment. Then so be it, you know. Have you always been a fan of He-Man, or did it die off for a while? What brought you back? Thank you. Um, I was a fan. Obviously, whenever I was a kid, you you know yourself that whenever you're at a kid, you go through certain phases of you like one thing, then you like another, and then you like another. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a He-Man fan. Then I think whenever the toys were given away and the show wasn't on TV anymore um, we kind of died off for me we became more of a Star Wars fan now it's reversed, I was a Star Wars fan still am, but I'm more of a Master Universe fan, thanks muchly to the internet and the .org forums um, with the likes of the internet means that you know, you can talk to like-minded people like I'm doing now, talking to yourself. Or, you know, we can post things in the forums uh, with the likes of eBay. You can track down figures that you used to have. I need to track down a trap jaw one of these days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, it means that you can talk to like-minded people um, and you can experience what they liked about the show, what their favorite figures are, you know, that kind of thing. But it would be the, it would be the internet that really brought me back into it since 2001 um, I'm lucky I joined the .org forums because I was actually uh, a winner of one of the Keldor figures whenever they gave them away, I think it was in 2003 or thereabouts I actually got one of them um, but no, it was um, it's been fun, you know, talking to people and meeting other people who are uh, who like the same things as you do because there's not many people you know in my f- friends that I hang out with, you know, at the weekend or whatever, that um, like the He-Man or She-Ra stuff, whereas people on the internet, you can uh, talk to them about it. Uh, what figure can you just not stand? It's either too ludicrous or it's got a bad design or... Well, after James, a.k.a. Roboto, uh, pointing Staghorn in my direction, that would have to be one that... I just can't really stand. But another one would be Rio Blast. I don't understand why you need to have a, a, an, in inverted commas, heroic gunslinger on Eternia. Uh, you know, I can see the point for having a, a you know, a heroic water blaster, um, <laughs> but not really a gunslinger. Um, 
I just never saw the point of it. Didn't really like. I have the statue figure of it just to complete the line, but I never really liked the figure in the classic um, line. Um, if they were or the vintage line, sorry. If they were to bring out a classic figure, fair enough, I'll buy it to support it. But not really my favourite uh, character in the world. Um, I didn't really like Grizzlor that much either. Um, I think it was because of the amount of fur that he had. Mm-hmm. I'd really wary of if the four horsemen do him the way that uh, Mossman's flocked now. Uh, if they flock him like that, I think it'll just be horrible. But I, I'll probably be proven wrong because the four horsemen haven't really messed up that much so far. But uh, Rio Blast would be the one that uh, I just really can't stand and really don't want to spend a lot of money on to get in my vintage line again. Okay. So, um, back to Grizzlor. I particularly like Grizzlor. But, oh. <laughs> I, I, um, I didn't have the vintage. I got the Staction. Do you have the Staction one? Yeah. The Staction one's a lot better. Yes. It's just, uh, it's just the fur. I don't, I don't really, I don't really like, uh, you know, um, I, I preferred it on Mossman, on the exclusive one, than I did on the, uh, classic figure. I'm just very odd that way. Just yeah. don't really like the fur, you know. Okay. Well, what if they include a comb with it? Would you like it then? No, because Shira has a comb. It's Shira's brush, and that's it. No one else should really get that. Plus, I haven't really watched many episodes of Shira lately, where Grizzlor is, you know, coming <laughs> hair, aka like the fawns, and saying, "Hey, don't worry about it, Hordak." I haven't really heard <laughs> anything like that. <laughs> oh. I shouldn't have said that. All right. <laughs> oh, let's see here. Is is there a figure that you uh, can't seem to find other than Trapjaw, um, or uh, or one that you want to particularly see in the uh, classics line? Um, well, I, it took me ages to find a Prince Adam and eventually find him. Um, Manny Faces is one that every time I click on him, the money is just way too much for me to spend on one figure. Uh, I can't really justify to myself spending, you know, two, three hundred dollars in a figure. I know some people can, and that's fine. If nothing against people, you know, spending money on their hobby. The way I look at it is, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs. I'm allowed to have some money to spend on figures. You know, that's the way I justify it to myself. But if I was to get a Manny Faces cheap on eBay, a uh, vintage one, I'd be happy. I would love to see him on in the. Um, the classic line, I think it would be a fantastic figure to have. Uh, but that's the, that's one that really seems to elude me every time I go on. Um, I did bid on one that was on the UK one, but um, I went up to, I think it was about 60 pounds, to so say about 120 dollars $130, but the reserve of it wasn't met, so he obviously wanted more. And didn't really want to deal with somebody outside eBay because I'm not a mug. And I'll not say, here's some money, don't send me anything, thanks very much. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, Manny Faces would be one that I would love to get vintage and classic-wise. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what is uh, one thing you'd like to see in a new action Masters of the Universe movie? Uh, transformation sequence, for one. Uh, I would like to... I would like for it to be more more be centered around the cartoon, you know, have the characters from the cartoon, have the likes of say, you know, a trap jaw and a manny faces and, you know, uh you know, say the likes of the King Randor, that kind of thing. Have characters that we're familiar with. 
don't have characters like Sorod and Blade and Gwildor that you know we we're not over familiar with. Mm-hmm. If you have people going to the cinema and going, ah, oh, you know, even if they have seen the filmation one or they've seen the Mike Young production one, they're going to have an understanding of what the characters are and who they are. Uh, you can have the likes of, say, like a web store or Stratos, and you can get Sean Connery then to voice Stratos. <laughs> There's a job for Sean Connery, bring him out of retirement. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. So, in, in, in a way, a good transformation sequence, a good storyline, by all means. Don't, you know, just make it like a camp comedy, an hour and a half of a guy walking around in, you know, purple tights and a pink shirt or whatever. <laughs> don't be doing anything like that make it more centered towards the fans of the cartoons so they can go to it and go like wow I really enjoyed that at the end of the day I'm not really fussed if it's a monumental blockbuster as long as the Master of the Universe community enjoys the film is the way I look at it okay makes sense okay uh, second to last question and, or I guess it's a series of questions <laughs> Uh, real quick, I'm going to spout off the lines of figures, and I want you to quickly, quickly, mind you, state, okay. state what your favorite figure is from each line. Okay. Okay. Uh, first one, Vintage. Manny Faces. New Adventures. Uh, I have no idea. I'll just say He-Man, because I'm not really that based on the New Adventures. Okay. Uh, Mike Young, or 2000X. Snake one. Armor He-Man. Snake Armor He-Man. Ah, uh, Stactions. Montana. And the Classics figures. <sighs> That's how it was, Scareglow. Scareglow. All right. Yeah. Well, you did pretty well. I give you about an 8.5. Oh, yay. <laughs> I may have to settle for the bronze, as they say. Yes. Right. <laughs> and final question. <clears throat> if you could be any character from all the lines of Masters of the Universe... Um, who would you be and why? And I'll 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 include the cartoon with this. That way you can pick any obscure characters that never had a figure or something like that. Okay. Um, since he's figured so predominantly with my favorite figure and my favorite figure from the vintage, I'll go Manny Faces. It'd be nice to have a split personality and have three faces. So you can have the human face, be nice to people, have the robot face. You know, be a bit more intelligent, perhaps, and then have the monster face where you can be nasty to people if if you need to be. But uh, I would probably say many faces. I wouldn't be trap jaw because I'd probably set my um, bits down somewhere and come back and there'd be a fire or something. So <laughs> I'll not be trap jaw. Okay. <laughs> oh, and uh, if any of you fans have an extra trap jaw, please send it to Chris. I'm sure he would, uh, would thoroughly enjoy it. I would thoroughly enjoy anything that people want to send to me uh, whatsoever. Any gift at all, any loose figures, any mint-on-card figures, you name it, I'll gladly accept it. Well, I, I don't think you should stretch it to mint-on-card. I don't think anybody's going to send you that stuff. Oh, mint-on-card or or loose ones, whatever, I don't I don't mind. That's, that's fine with me. I will gladly display it where I can and thank you all on the show and give you recognition that you deserve. <laughs> All right, Chris. Well, uh, thank you for being uh, my first interviewee. Or, yeah, is that the right expression? Interview. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks for being my first interview. <laughs> no problem. Um, would you care to um, let the fans know how they can possibly be on this particular segment? 
Yep, all you need to do is go onto Skype. Um, you can contact myself at Vento316. I will put you in touch with Josh. Or what you can even do is go onto the heman.org forums, look for Bullen, that's B-U-L-U-N, and um, you can send him a private message, and you can go from there. All right, excellent. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much, Josh. It's been a pleasure talking to you. No problem. Thank you. Hi, this is Jason Lennox, one of the webmasters of www.bonethefish.com, the website that picks up where Jump the Shark left off. Uh, doing a little bit of a commentary here for the Masters of the Universe Chronicles podcast, and what I'm going to highlight today, as I'm a big fan of it, is the three major factions of villains uh, from the He-Man storyline, and in particular their 2002 Mike Young uh, reincarnations in the animated series. Uh, one of the things that... Uh, I always felt uh, was a little bit short in the uh, 80s Filmation cartoon was the obvious fact that the uh, villains didn't really seem to have much of a motivation except to uh, cause trouble and to, uh, in Skeletor's case, be a bully to his minions. But uh, you, you never really get a, a sense of what, what, was, you know, what was their politics, what was their motivation. So in many ways they were just kind of uh, shells or caricatures of bad guys. And what I thought that Mike Young in 2002 and his writing staff did an excellent job of was giving us uh, some politics and to try to diversify and to separate what these three distinct groups of villains were. And those would be Skeletor and his evil warriors, King Hiss and his snake men, and Hordak and his horde. And uh, I'll first touch upon Hordak. We see him in Price of Deceit, we see him in History, and we see him in the excellent episode Power of Greyskull, uh, where we learn the origins of He-Man and uh, as well as uh, Castle Greyskull. Uh, from analyzing Hordak from what little we know about him, and, and we would have learned more if they hadn't canceled the show because he was supposed to be the primary villain in season three, uh, is that he is a fascist. And uh, one of the things that you know you can pick up from, from the one live scene that he does have in that episode is that he is always correct and there is no input. It is not a democracy with Hordak. And the most obvious uh, part of that is that uh, Kallax, who is a rock-like character, uh, that was, as far as I know, never made an interaction figure, is executed on the spot for, in fact, questioning and probably giving advice to uh, Hordak's orders. Hordak, uh, very much like Hitler, uh, is in the uniforms. Uh, all of his troops, despite their uh, differences, and you can look at Leech, uh, Grizzlor, and Mantena, as well as his drones, uh, they're very serious about having uniforms, very serious about having standards, and I think that was a real nod to say that you know Hordak in many ways, is is a fascist state. Uh, you could even compare him a little bit to North Korea and Kim Jong-il. But uh, one of the other things that we learn about him uh, through the episode history is that the Dark Hemisphere on Eternia is caused by the spell of separation and that uh, Hordak was willing to completely alter the planet to make it more suitable to him. Uh, and what it really all boils down to is it's a dictatorship, it's totalitarian, and with Hordak, it's a fascist. And uh, he's the boss, and he'll do anything it takes to keep himself on top. And uh, I think that sums up what we know about Hordak, because we don't know a whole lot about him, unfortunately. Uh, King Hiss and the Snake Men. I think the biggest thing that the Snake Men uh, are different than the other villains is that uh, it's racially pure. King Hiss is a racist. Everyone that works for him is a Snake Man. And uh, his men love him. And in fact, in the uh, final part of Rise of the Snake Men, when he is thrown off uh, into the moat around Castle Grayskull, his men 
uh, all jump after him. And you could say that his his troops, uh, in fact, love him, uh, unlike Hordax, which are probably afraid of him, and as well as Skeletors, who are constantly tormented by him. Uh, I think the, the big thing where we realize that King Hiss is, in fact, uh, you know, racially motivated is that one, when Evil Lynn, who's used to being in a very uh, diverse group of uh, henchmen with Skeletor's evil warriors, uh, tries to betray Skeletor and work for King Hiss, uh, their reward to her uh, is that they will eat her and kill her. And uh, you figure out pretty quick that if you're not a snake man, that King Hiss is not going to be your friend. Uh, they eat people. And uh, in the episode Rattle the Snake, they try to transform people uh, into snakes, and uh, that theme has continued on the third season DVD or the third uh, set of DVDs, uh, where they have an unreleased final episode, episode forty, where they show that Man at Arms has turned into a snake man, which also was apparently a plot point that never got to make it to the animated uh, part of the show. Uh, and and I think one of the other things too uh, with King Hiss is that uh, with Cobra Khan, uh, in many ways he is disparaged because he is not is pure for being a first generation snake man and that's hinted on through his uh, chafing with some of the more senior snake men and uh, obviously uh, the politics of King Hiss and Hordak uh, don't mix and you know it's it's referenced through a large uh, mural shot that uh, they tried to kill each other around the uh, ancient part of Eternian history as featured in the episode Power of Grayskull. King Hiss you feel is, is much of a match as Hordak but their their politics and their way of doing business is a lot different and, and part of that I believe King Hiss does value and, and in fact love uh, his inner circle whereas I discussed before that Hordak was more than willing to kill Calyx for uh, even speaking his mind a little bit and uh, finally to the most well known and probably my favorite uh, villain and his group is Skeletor and the Evil Warriors and, and I think really if, if you look at Skeletor they've done an incredible job uh, through fleshing out who his character is, and if I could say anything about Skeletor, is that he's great, and he just chews scenery when he's in the show. Skeletor uh, is really revealed uh, through the episode Price of Deceit that uh, he was a political anarchist, and uh, they show through him and, and uh, Triclops and Cronus, who becomes Trapjaw, you see them stealing and robbing and, and basically trying to cause trouble for King Randor, and then that's later in the in the second season. But in the first season, you, you get the, the gist that he's trying to overthrow the current political uh, hierarchy, which is the elders and the, the king and Randor, and that uh, he just does not like it. And uh, I, I almost compare him to an attorney in Che Guevara or Fidel Castro. Uh, he wants to overthrow everything. Obviously, he's burned. And he has to go to Hordak to save his life, and he's scarred and becomes from uh, Keldor to Skeletor. And uh, then I think the political part of it goes out the window. You don't see the well-spoken, overthrowing the government uh, type person where I believe that he just becomes purely an anarchist. Uh, he's very unpredictable. His loyalties are there and that he does not kill his own men, but through the episodes in Council of Evil Part 1 and 2, which continues in the premiere of Season 2, the episode The Last Stand, he's more than willing to throw his own guys under the bus and bring in an all-new uh, crew to further his uh, dreams of becoming the most powerful uh, entity on Eternia. And uh, I don't really feel it's political then. I, I feel that it, it, it's just that he wants to become powerful. Uh, and I think he is well shown as insane, uh, despite being a very talented magician. But 
you know, unlike Hordak, who's very structured and noticed with the uniforms and the insignia, and King Hiss, who is very racist and has a very racially pure group of snake men villains, uh, Skeletor kind of picks and chooses. His life and powers were given to him by Hordak, and he inhabits uh, King Hiss's old headquarters. So he has kind of cobbled together origins from both of the two older groups of villains. And in addition to that, uh, his henchmen are very diverse, and, and, and we could give Skeletor a big pat in the back for being politically correct, from from Merman to Clawful to uh, having Evil Lynn, a female on his team, uh, you know, as, as well as a, a cyborg and, and uh, Triclops, the inventor, and, and Beastman. And, and while he likes to pick uh, often uh, on his uh, henchmen, uh, he, he keeps them around and... Uh, he seems to get an enjoyment out of picking on them, and as you recall, even after uh, the uh, the failed uh, takeover of the Snake Men of Snake Mountain, after most of Skeletor's troops are turned to stone, uh, he he does restore them. So you know, you could almost say Skeletor somewhere does love his guys, even though he would probably shoot you with his havoc staff if you told him that. Uh, you know, I, I think that Skeletor is an anarchist, and, and one of the themes they were going to explore in Season 3, apparently, was that after Hordak had taken over Eternia, that Skeletor was in some way going to betray and overthrow him because he's so dangerous, and uh, he'll turn on anybody. Uh, and even where Hordak has summoned him back to uh, bring him back from Despondos to Eternia in the episode Power of Grayskull, uh, Skeletor, even though Hordak saved his life, turns on him, and is as unpredictable and Going for that goal of being an anarchist as ever destroys uh, Hordak's obvious uh, way out from a, a temple. And, uh, you know, I, I think if you can take those three groups, uh, none of them like each other. Skeletor attacks Hordak, he fights King Hiss's men, and, and uh, none of these groups of villains uh, get along. And I think it really added to what could have been an even better show than it already was by filling out a backstory and fleshing out these three very separate and distinct evil leaders and their troops. Uh, and I think it was a really great part of the show. So uh, that's uh, all I have to say for today regarding the three groups of He-Man villains. And uh, this is Jason Lennox from BoneTheFish.com signing off. And take care and enjoy Masters of the Universe. Thanks. Now it's time for your voicemails. Why not let your voice be heard and leave the Chronicles podcast your thoughts via Vento 316 on Skype. Hello Masters of the Universe Chronicles fans, my name is Alan Price and I am the co-host of Operation Retroshock alongside your very own Chris Finn. On Operation Retroshock we want you to remember the fun in your childhood. All those old TV shows and movies you watched such as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Ghostbusters and Doctor Who to name just a few. We also want you to feel the urge to dig out your old games consoles and think just why they were so good not only then but now. So when you're done here listening to Chris and Masters Universe Chronicles, why not come and join the both of us on Operation Retroshock on the Pop Culture Network. Trust me, you won't be disappointed. The Masters of the Universe Chronicles will return after these messages. From the hideous corridors of the Fright Zone come Hordak's Agents of Evil, Dragstore, Part Eagle Warrior, Part Deadly Vehicle, The Demon of Speed. Multibot multiplies and mutates 22 movable parts, making for multiple terror. Horde Trooper, the mindless robotic enforcer, he's cracking up. Mantisaur, the gruesome insectoid steed, Hordak rides him through anything. You can complete your evil horde with this gang of destruction, each sold separately. 
And remember, you can get King Randor free when you buy any three Masters of the Universe figures. Hey guys, this is Pixel Dan, and you're listening to Chris Vint on the Masters of the Universe Chronicles podcast. Cyclone found that when people care deeply for one another, it's easy to think of them as family. And if enough of us start caring for our neighbors, maybe one day the whole world will think of itself as one big family. Until next time. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Masters of Universe Chronicles. We uh, normally have an interview right about now, and I'm pleased to say I'm going to be speaking to a guy who worked on a show that I was uh, loving to watch in 2002, so if you would like to introduce yourself, please. Hey, Chris, this is Dean Stefan. I was the um, story editor and head writer on the um, Mike Young 2002 show. Mr. Stefan, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, um, and just to thank you for, t- I say this to everyone, and I always mean it, uh, I thank you for taking the time out of your schedule, especially on a on a Sunday to get this recorded, and to give your opinion on some of the Masters of the Universe 2002 stuff that you worked on. Well, as you know, I, I didn't want to do it right away, but when you sent me that uh, brand new laptop and the flat screen <laughs> TV, it was... Uh, I couldn't say no. And please, Chris, call me Dean, okay? Okay, thank you, Dean. Uh, yeah, I'm out, I'm out of pocket with yourself and John Callis, you know, having to send him money as well. So, uh, yeah, if you want to send me some money via PayPal, I'd appreciate it. Absolutely. Okay. So do you mind if we crack on with the questions then, Dean? Please. Okay. First question I have for you is, how did you become involved in the He-Man and the Master of the Universe show by Mike Young Productions? First of all, my relationship with Mattel started before Masters of the Universe, and I was um, brought in there to actually do uh, a pilot for a girls-related show based on this line of dolls that they had. You know, it just wasn't it wasn't exactly the perfect fit, but I had a good relationship with a, a woman, Sarah Mazes, who worked at Mattel, and she brought me in for that. And from that, I guess I developed a relationship with Rob Hudnut, who was sort of the head of the department, and somewhat, and Ian Richter, who at the time was a young pup who was, I guess, Rob's assistant, and then cut to a couple of years later when they are doing Masters of the Universe relaunch, and they were wanted to do a pilot episode, and I think they actually had an episode that was already written that they weren't uh, wasn't exactly what they wanted to do. So they called me in, and uh, you know, knowing I had an action adventure background, and really that's that's all I knew at the point. I. I was not a He-Man, you know, it wasn't my generation, so I didn't grow up watching He-Man. I didn't know the universe, but I I was very pleasantly surprised that I grasped it right away just from watching, you know, a few episodes. I, I mean, I got good and evil, you know, kid becomes a superhero by raising the sword. So it, it wasn't like Transformers or heavy gear, which were um, things that... 
I'd almost been involved with before where there was like this incredible, you know, uh, a thousand pages to look at of trucks, especially heavy gear. That was something that I, I, I thought that there would be an incredible amount of material, you know, that I'd have to absorb. But I got that the, the essence of it was uh, good versus evil, you know, the uh, very mythic. And um, but at the at the time where I wrote what I called the pilot, you know, to me it was just another job. I mean, I really enjoyed it, but no idea it was going to be a series, you know, because these things get done all the time. Mm-hmm. By the time the pilot was animated, uh, I knew that it was going to be a series and they wanted me to be story editor, but, you know, there was a gap of probably several months between those two things. Okay. So what you were saying there about, you know, you being the, the story editor, so could mm-hmm. you explain what your role as the writer and the story editor involved? Yeah, I it's it's a hard thing to um, put into words. Um, I, I could tell you about this show, particularly in general. A story editor in animation is sort of what they would call a showrunner in live action, meaning you're in charge of the writers. In live action and sitcoms and such, they sit around a table, and you know the head writer or the showrunner kind of oversees everything, doles out episodes. And in what we do, and it varies from show to show, but on He-Man. I worked out of my home, as as you mostly will do in writing, unless you have a staff job. So basically, uh, I worked out of my home, and I doled out freelance assignments to writers. But in this show, because there was an overall arc, and there were things that we were planting earlier and stuff, it was basically, um, there was a lot more plotting going on, and I would say... Initially, it was between myself and Rob Hudnut and Ian Richter, the Mattel guys. Later, Rob sort of stepped off more and more after, say, the the pilot and then um, a few episodes into it, and, and Ian became more the, the honcho from the Mattel side. And basically, we would just spitball around ideas, and he would say things like, uh, you know, we want to do an episode that features the, the dragon walkers, for instance. Um, and I would either say, okay, I don't know how to do that, or it sounds stupid, or I'd say, okay, that could probably work in the episode we had talked about with, you know, whoever the villains were in that. You know, it, it was actually few and far between where Mattel had, you know, toy concerns. I could probably count them on one hand. It, it was more like, you know... Uh, when He-Man is traveling or they're traveling from point A to point B, can they take the, you know, the Battle Hawk instead of the Star Cruiser? You know, stuff that yeah. did not, from a writing point of view, didn't affect me. Um, so I would say Ian and I sort of plotted out an overall arc. I mean, some things were real pie in the sky that we never got to do. Um, but in general, the actual nuts and bolts are basically, you know, I wrote the first handful of episodes, I guess, one through four, um, okay. and at the, and then it would sort of be, I would talk to a writer, and we would all, already have the premise, because we knew where we were mm-hmm. in, in terms of that, so we'd say, okay, um, the Edens brothers, for instance, Mark and Michael, we want to do an episode where um, the dragon comes, and uh, you know this, this, and this happens, and then they would write a premise or I would give them the premise, and then, uh, you know, that gets notes from myself, from Mattel, from wherever, and then I would sort of rewrite it, probably, based on those notes, or give it back to the writer, and then that happens, then we go to an outline, 
and the same thing happens. I personally, I usually work this way: that a writer will give me the, the outline or script, and I will give them my own notes, give it back to them, give them a second shot, then I'll pass it up the food chain to Mattel and whoever. And at that point, I sort of take it over. It becomes um, I will do all the rewrites from then, and that's sort of my basic way of working. The writer gets two shots at you know their draft with me, and then I become sort of the uh, the owner of the script. Okay. So with that there, so with the, you having different writers and stuff, um, so you weren't responsible for all the stories, so the freelance writers came in with ideas of their own? Probably not. Probably okay. pro- They probably didn't. Um, the only two exceptions I would say were um, Sky War and Lessons. Um, those okay. were early on, and there was this weird kind of limbo between the time I officially got the job to be story editor and I guess they were also considering other people or the deal hadn't been worked out or they hadn't talked to me so it with Mattel with um, I think it was Michael Reeves and Larry Dottilio they had started these two episodes so uh, I wasn't the official story editor even though by the time the scripts were being done I was already the story editor I wasn't as involved with those two the only thing I was probably involved with was sort of laying the pipe for um I think Sky War is one where there's some kind of uh, the battle between the two races. And I think in the episode before Maybe Courage of Adam, we sort of laid the pipe that Stratos is going off to mediate something with Adam along with him. So we always tried to add a little thread. But um, other than those, every every other episode, it was, you know, I would, Ian would either say, uh, you know, why don't we explore something or something else? Or I would say, you know, what's the deal with Mechanic, you know, can we do an origin story and figure out, you know, what he's all about? I would say early, the first season, uh, I would say, if the first 13 episodes, say, I would say we had a focus on, and this was a lot for my benefit, I wanted to focus on some of the characters and find out their origins just so that um, I could understand them and write them because when they're just sort of many faces or too bad, it's sort of like, I, I don't really know what they're about. And it's more interesting. It's more interesting if you sort of have to base an episode around them, and then you're forced to figure out what they're about, and then that that enriches the world because you know they're not just the cast. They're sort of like you know real living, breathing creatures who have a backstory and a history and real needs and vulnerabilities and stuff like that. No, that's that's fair enough. I mean, uh, as you explained there, you know, with Too Bad, um, that was the first time that we saw that, you know, it was Tuvar and Badra, and then, you know, you meshed them both together to make Too Bad, you know, so we had the stories like that there. Some of them were very good, the likes of uh, the Psychome one, the uh, Mystery of Anwak Gar is one of my favourite uh, origin stories. As really? Well. Yeah. That's uh, cool. That, always, that was a much-hated uh, episode, wasn't it, by a left hand? I've always been a Cyclone fan, so that's probably why I like it so much. But everyone has different opinions, and sure. it would be pretty boring if we all had the same tastes and all like the same thing, you know? Absolutely. Um, so are there any specific freelance scripts that you had to edit more than others? That's, uh, that's <laughs> it's, it's, uh, for one thing, I think we, we sort of, when we exchanged emails, I mentioned that this is going back almost 10 years to the inception, so it's sort of, it's, <laughs> it's sort of become sort of a maze uh, or a blur in my mind. Uh, of, of Machines and Men, I think, was probably 
the most one that I had the most problem with, um, and no discredit to the writer. It was just I could not wrap my mind around. And this was a case where Mattel wanted to do the uh, the armored He-Man. Yeah. I couldn't wrap my mind around why He-Man needed armor or why Skeletor <laughs> did. So <laughs> it's basically like you're you've got this big elephant in the room that you have to deal with and you have to contrive and I can only use that word contrive a story around it and I you know I think we did the best we could and ironically I didn't I didn't remember this but I was just reading that that's the episode that won an Emmy for sound editing because I think they did a great a great job on the sound throughout the series but um, that that was really the hardest one and I think the writer I believe he was was it Mark Halperin and Michael Halperin he was like an original He-Man guy who did the original Bible or development for the show in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So there was that history, too. The writers give me something that doesn't feel like the show, and there's a lot of editing. Sometimes Mattel has a lot of problems with something. Sometimes the length is just too much, and you know you have to hack out a whole bunch of it, and by doing that, sometimes you got to retool a lot. So... Um, you know that that was the only one that really sticks out as a lot of editing, I would say. Okay, so uh, could you explain how you and the director Gary Hartle worked on the series together? Yeah, Gary uh, and Gary, uh, you know, he's just a great guy and is super talented. And he, surprisingly, there isn't as much interaction between, at least on this show, and on most shows, between the writer and the direction and the art side um, they everybody at Mike Young the artists all worked out of Mike Young studios um, what I call the dungeon it was a big space that Gary and Jay Oliva and uh, you know there must have been 2,000 artists in like a closet it was kind of like that it smelled they were you know they never they never bathed they they had food fights it was you know, rats right now. It wasn't that bad, but it was. it's a totally different environment. They're working at Mike Young Studios, which is about three miles from my house, but I hardly ever went over there. Mattel is, say, 20 miles from my house, and I would sort of be in my little workspace here with, you know, three outlines on my desk that I have to, you know, I was doing a script a week we had to turn in, so I'm rewriting the first draft of this one, the second draft of this, you know, writing my own script here for this, getting the premise for two episodes down, getting the notes on two episodes ago. I mean, literally, I would have a stack of ten different active things that had to be worked on. And all this is a roundabout way of saying there wasn't as much time to inter- interact with Gary as I would have liked. You know, I go, I would go down there occasionally and, um, you know, just be amazed at their stuff they were doing. And um, with Ian and Gary, we, Ian Richter and Gary Hart, we would occasionally have lunch and talk real uh, sort of blue sky kind of, you know, things. You know, they were, Gary was really into this whole idea of the blue race being uh, with Keldor and others of his type being of a different lineage and having different, you know, levels of strength and a lot of things that were not really that important to me because I was just sort of like, I want to tell a story. But I understood from an artist's point of view, that means a lot. They know the relative strengths of these different characters and stuff. And, uh, you know, from a writing point of view, sometimes it doesn't matter all that much. It's sort of like you could just say this guy is stronger than the other guy. <laughs> and uh, 
you know, Gary is very visual by, obviously, for direction and being an artist. And also, he had a lot of ideas for the show. And I, I know we incorporated a lot of that. But I think a lot of it was filtered through Ian, who was sort of the, the filter for everyone, really. He got, he gave me the Mattel notes. He, you know, spoke with Gary more than I did. He was always down at Mike Young looking at designs and stuff. So I was sort of in my little crucible just trying to keep my head above the water. I mean, <laughs> you know, honestly, I remember once, one day, like, one writer doesn't have a fax machine. So he can't receive my notes. I, you know, I'm telling him to go down to this Kinko's, which is a, a printing shop. And he goes there, and he doesn't get it. This other writer sends me stuff in the wrong format. This other <laughs> writer... That, I mean, you know, any one of those things by themselves are no big deal. But when you've got, like, 12 of them, you know, in one day, yeah. and keeping you from actually writing the script you're working on or meeting the deadline, it becomes a, an unbearable pressure cooker. And that's sort of like I was sitting there. I'm saying, I can't believe you know I'm all alone in this kind of thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Were you involved in the casting of the voices at all? No, I had no involvement in that. I believe that was probably done. Um, obviously, by the time they did the pilot, and I was probably not even officially working for them. And the other thing, I think they worked the the casting and the recording was done in Canada. So I never went up there for a recording session. All I did was hear the tapes afterwards. Okay, you could probably see where this question th that question was going. So, do you have now? You're the first person I've talked to to do with the Mike Young show. So I want an answer for this question for my own sanity. Okay. Do you know why Stratos's voice bore a strong resemblance to Sean Connery's, and to quote Stratos, was as purely accidental? Okay. Well, since you asked, and I don't think. I can really keep a secret any longer. No. And you're going to have the exclusive on this. That was not a sound like that actually was Sean Connery doing the voice. I think you're lying. Well, <laughs> prove me wrong. No. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have no idea. I really don't. I, I, I imagine the bulk of the character, and they wanted him to have sort of a... Uh, a gravitas, but also a little bit of a twinkle in his eye kind of thing. And uh, and it may have been that they just thought because we're, um, you know, he's got a different land that maybe to America would be relative to what Scotland is. Let's yeah. give him sort of a Scottish lilt. And then, of course, maybe the voice actor, you hear Scottish, he immediately thinks Sean Connery. You know, it may be as simple as that. I don't really know. We didn't really play to that that much. I don't think we gave, I don't think we said, you know, call me Stratos, you know, James <laughs> Stratos. Or, but, uh, you well, know, we avoided... There wasn't any plans to um, storyboard him in a tuxedo or anything like that? <laughs> right. I want Skeletor shaken, not stirred. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, please, could you explain the process that led to the creation of King Grayskull? Some people love him, some people hate him. So, it's uh, just to get your side of the story across regarding him. Uh, okay, uh, I I could be wrong about this. I believe that originally, when He-Man was first designed, and we're going back 25, 30 years, I believe he was designed sort of as a knockoff, in a way, of Conan the Barbarian. Mm -hmm. And I believe his original design was very barbarian-looking. And um, then they sort of refined that to the He-Man toy for legal reasons or whatever. Remember the toys... And again, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that the toys came before the cartoon series. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. 
So they had to, you know, tailor it and make this barbarian type of character, not Conan, but, you know, He-Man. And then um, I think the original design was always kicking around, you know, Mattel and stuff like that. And uh, I'm sure it came from Ian um, that he liked the idea of somehow using this barbarian design. And we talked for six months, a year, about, you know, uh, an idea of, uh, you know, and this was mixed in with the whole idea of what is the power of Grayskull? What is, you know, what does that literally mean? Is it the castle that has the power? Why is the castle there? Who built it kind of thing? And I think that led to the conversations about there being a King Grayskull. Having said that, then it becomes what's Adam He-Man's relationship to him? You know, is it like, you know, uh, Green Lantern where, you know, it's a franchise where everybody gets the ring and whoever gets the sword is the winner. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gary and Ian had this whole thing about um, that Adam was, chosen because he was pure of heart and had never spilt blood and that sort of would have been the same thing that harked back to King Grayskull and and, uh, you know there was some sort of lineage there and uh, then as as the episode developed you know I thought it would be fun to have the uh, I think it was Vino was the precursor of the sorcerers basically they were all sort of you know uh, they were the ancestors or descendants of these original characters, and then throwing Orko in as the Oracle, I think, was more for comedy and uh, you know to give him some um, gravitas and stuff. But it was, I think, I think the genesis really was a combination of they had this sort of barbaric design, and we also wanted to explore what what it meant by the power of Grayskull. I mean, I understand that by liter- making it that literal, we sort of um, probably alienated some fans who liked the mystery more um, kept un, unspoken what can you do I, it, just as a sidebar I, I was at a writers meeting uh, of several years ago the writers guild and just a bunch of writers who sit around and drink coffee and I met this guy <laughs> who <laughs> I met this guy who had uh, worked on the original development for He-Man you know, I guess when it was still poised and they put little booklets in there and he had come up with um, Castle Grayskull and uh I said, you know, I said, how did you come up with the name? He said, oh, my sister-in-law's last name was Gray, and you know, so <laughs> it's sort of like you find out the uh, that these great mysteries are just sort of, you know, I my sister-in-law, I needed a name, you know, I stick it in a toy. Nobody, nobody thought it would be a, a series or anything. It was just sort of something to promote the toy. So it's funny how you sort of build upon these little things. <laughs> okay, um, obviously we've had, um, you've had. Probably a lot of people, you know, who don't like Cass- or King Grayskull. Um, obviously, you've probably heard on my podcast that John Callis, uh, he uh, personally, you know, doesn't like King Grayskull. So while you're here, I'm going to let you put your side across of King Grayskull, the power of good, you know, why you like King Grayskull and why people should like him. Well, I don't know why people should like him. They can either like him or not, I guess. I mean, I know, I, I know at Comic-Con, you know, Mattel always wanted to show that episode. I mean, they showed it a couple times. So, obviously, it's got some richness. I, I think there's something in the, the roots of He-Man's power that's interesting about King Grayskull. And what, what I liked is sort of um, the Wizard of Oz kind of element of it that, you know, you had this all along. Basically, he goes, it's basically a hero goes on a journey, 
you know, he's got to go through the, the desert and fight the dragons to get to the end place where the oracle tell him t- tells him he would fi- he'll he'll find what he's looking for the power or the sword or the the strength and basically the message is it was all always inside you um, but you needed to go through this to discover it I mean that's sort of the hero's journey in in so many myths and stories it's very it's very um, primal it's very um, universal um, it's very Wizard of Oz basically which is that you know everything you need is inside yourself you just need to you know discover that and you know I still get chills when when I see it or read it when he finally and I think this was Ian's idea to actually when he's facing off with the horde and he first first time he says I have the power King Grayskull yeah. because He's basically affirming what he learned with Orko the Oracle um, that the powers inside you, he man or King Grayskull. You know, you always had it, and he kind of takes ownership of that. And he also dies. I mean, to me, that was really a big deal that we killed off the guy, and his wife is grieving, and you know, all these characters become spirits and take over. You know, they inhabit. They become the the elders and the you know the the power and the orb and the stone and the sword. I mean, I I think it's got a lot of great touchstones that don't really take away from the modern day He-Man or the the He-Man who's the star of the series. It just gives a little richness and texture to it. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, one thing I always questioned was when he becomes He-Man, who since he's sort of a newborn in in the beginning, the pilot episode. Who does he think he is? What memories does he have? And um, I don't know the specific answer to that, but if he is sort of the inheritor of a power or a, you know, a destiny, then it kind of, to me, it explains it a little more. I mean, he would probably, if we had gone on with the series, we would flush out that link between King Grayskull and He-Man, and uh, you know, we might have seen more stories with King Grayskull and find out that maybe... Well, I can't even speculate, but he might not have been as pure as we thought, or you know, other things could have uh, could have been this backstory. That's Is that a good defense? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, that's 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 fine with me. It's fine with me. Yeah. So, h- how much creative control did Mattel have when it came to each and every episode? Everywhere from very little to complete. You know, but having said that, it's sort of like saying. A record producer gives you three and a half minutes to do a pop song. How much creative control do they have? Well, they're telling you it's going to be, you know, three and a half minutes, and they're telling you that you got to use maybe these backing musicians. But within that frame, you can, you know, wail as much as you want. And I, I like to think of it more that way. There were certain constraints. I mean, obviously time and page count, and obviously certain characters that they favored that they maybe would want to bring in or, you know, it's never you have to use Count Marzo, you have to use Thinkor. It was just, a lot of it just came out of conversations. You know, this was a fun character from the first series. They never really did anything with him. Thinkor, they had a toy, I guess that was kind of offensive. Why don't we do an origin? So it wasn't really um, anything like that. Uh, Mattel, you know, they were footing the bill. It was their show. And I really think they wanted to they wanted to sh- the show to be as ent- entertaining as it could be um, 
you know, and they wanted to sell a lot of toys, which is really the bottom line. And yes. And the reason the series didn't go on, I think, is because they didn't sell a lot of toys. It's as simple as that. It wasn't ratings. It wasn't Cartoon Network. It wasn't animation or stories. It was basically, it wasn't selling toys. Okay, so um, obviously with you saying about, you know, there weren't selling enough toys, um, it, you know, with uh, He-Man has always been labeled as a big toy advert. What would your take be on this? Yes, it is a toy effort. <laughs> uh, but... I, I, I certainly couldn't approach it like that. I'm not a toy salesman. I don't know anything about it. I All I know is that, you know, my job is to tell compelling stories as best mm-hmm. I can. I could tell you that, you know, everybody from the writers to the artists were completely, you know, passionate about it, and we absolutely loved it and lived and breathed it and, um, you know, wanted it to be great as a cartoon. Uh, there was no... For one thing, by the time the the animation was shown on TV, you know, probably the toys were either selling or not, you know, so it wasn't really like an episode comes out, we wait to see if a toy sells. It's like we wrote that episode a year earlier. The Mattel point of view, yeah, it's a toy effort, but in this world, I mean, I, I worked for Disney for five or seven years off and on, and, you know, that's like saying Mickey Mouse is a toy effort. I think with the, w- <laughs> the way things are now, I think it's a synergy. It, it's a brand. It's a you know, obviously with HeMan.org and with your and with your interview show, and um, it's 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 more than a toy effort to the fans, and they know that they love the toys and they love the cartoon. But it's also you know, it's like Star Wars. I mean, morality tales. It's all these things, and I probably said this before, but. Right when the show was starting, it was right after 9-11, um, September 11th, 2001, um, there was a very, well, there, there was just a lot of, uh, obviously there was a lot of fear going on, a lot of real people trying to make sense of the world we live in, you know, the good and evil, how our actions affect, you know, how we're perceived and stuff. And I think that sort of unconsciously um, seeped into the storylines that we didn't consider it campy, we consider it a, a real strong power struggle between good and evil, and what, and also why the evil guy does he have an honest beef with the good guy? You know, and yes, he does in a way. And I think all that was sort of underlying. And then Lord of the Rings was out around that time, and I think Star Wars was getting relaunched, the new episode. So there was these very epic kind of. Um, things in the air, you know, both in fiction and movies and in the real world, and I think that that sort of reflected the show. I think if we had done the show maybe now, it might be a little sillier in a lot of ways, maybe younger. Um, You know, the other big influence, I think, was anime. I think you see that mostly in the pilot episode, a lot of, um, you know, twisting and twirling and that kind of thing. That's not as much on my end, as much as the writer, the artist are run with it. That's sort of a way to do action or, or, or violence or not violence. Um, I think uh, Rob, and I, I didn't really remember this, but I was looking at one of the DVD commentaries, and I think Ian said that Rob Hudson um, was really stressing that we have action without a lot of violence. Yeah. Um, so I think that was part of the reason for the um, anime kind of twirling and stuff. But I just remember going to a meeting at Cartoon Network and them saying, you know, you could have them kick each other's butt a lot more. You know, they were basically they were saying more violence. You know, let's have more, <laughs> you know, more blood and gore. 
which you know coming from Disney that was great to hear because that was always you know you know they can't fly through the air without a helmet on you know that kind of thing so it was sort of the opposite to hear a network say kick butt you know yeah <laughs> Um, so how did you go about creating new cast members like Decker for example um, since there was no toys pertaining to their characters Decker oh that was the island um, yeah I, I'm trying to think the exact genesis I mean I know that we wanted to get man at arms away from the the group I'm not sure if the reason was we wanted him to go mano a mano or we wanted um, Clawful I believe that was his home island to um you know, I think it was a merger of exploring Clawful's origin and maybe figuring out some stuff about Man-at-Arms with his mentor. There was, I think that was sort of my, uh, I think I came up with basically the whole idea of Decker for no apparent reason. I don't know why he was named Decker. We just sort of chose that name. You know, a lot of times things are different threads put together. We like the idea of Clawful being sort of an outcast from his people, I believe, and uh, which was reflected, I think, in some some of the underground battles. I I don't know. It's all sort of woven together in my memory. But it was it was it was as simple as that. It was there was no toy consideration in that case. Um, on the other hand, say something like uh, Anwar Ghat, or is it Angar Wat, the uh, the one with uh, with the farmer and stuff. There was definitely toy concerns. The samurai. You know, they wanted a setting for that. So we say, okay, that's great, because we want to do an origin for this character anyways. Okay. Um, besides episode 40, uh, were there any other episodes in production at that point? No, I mean, episode 40, I don't believe... They might have started the storyboards on that. I mean, the script was completely done with every intention that it was going to be shown. Um, but, yeah, we had we had an arc of stories that we wanted to come up with, that we wanted to you know, come out with the next season, and it's really unfortunate that the plug got pulled. I mean, I should backtrack a little bit. The Snake Men, you know, I, I, I like the Snake Men a lot. I like what we did with them. I personally didn't really get why we were doing that whole season of Snake Men. I, I was not really thrilled at the redesign of He-Man's armor. To me, it was like, um, you know, changing Superman's costume or something. I didn't, I didn't yeah. get it. I understand there were concerns that uh, I remember Cartoon Network felt like this was something they could really promote, you know, because they were looking like, as a network. They were just looking at what can we do, uh, you know, commercials or teasers about He-Man and Snake Men. Yeah, we could now uh, we can get on board. I think Mattel was happy to do that because they had Snake Men toys. I was marginally happy to have a job, of course, but I wasn't like <laughs> uh, you know I w I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't sure that, that we should have given that much credence to it. You know, I, I, I love doing Snake Man episodes, but I didn't think changing his costume and making it He-Man versus the Snake Man was... I didn't think it made a lot of sense. But then again, I think they were looking at... Uh, I think they were sensing that things needed to... Uh, a jolt in the arm thing. My, mm -hmm. You know, what I had talked about with Ian um, was focusing more on we we talked about <laughs> there are so many variations but there was basically a thing where randor at the end of one season would end up in despondos basically he would somehow sacrifice himself to get hurled to this other dimension say you know sort of a surrogate hell in a way 
and He-Man would, a few episodes in, go after his father to save him, kind of rescue him, and he would go down to Despondus. At the same time, I believe the idea was that uh, the faker, the, uh, the the fake He-Man, would sort of mm-hmm. um, take He-Man's place for a time to sort of, you know, so people would not despair that the, the hero still lives. And I believe what we wanted to do was have the evil warriors, Skeletor's guys, basically take over Castle Grayskull. You know, uh, not Castle Grayskull, the um, the Kingdom of Randor. Basically, they would overrun, and the masters would become sort of exiles. They would be out there kind of... Uh, a ragtag band basically led by Teela and Man-at-Arms or maybe Man-at-Arms would have gone over to the dark side at that point but basically they would have this He-Man who was not really He-Man and then we would cut to He-Man and Despondos and Randor and all that kind of stuff I mean that was sort of one of the vague ideas and overlaid with that was the return of of Hordak um, which we would have gone in that direction as well I think what happened was um, the, the Snake Man became sort of the focus, so we concentrated on that. Even even in those episodes where the Snake Man weren't the stars of the episode, we always had sort of a cutaway. I think the one where Marlena is fighting one of the Snake Men. We always sort of laid in some thread about the Snake Men, or in the one with Spydor um, uh, up in that mining town. We, we still had a Snake Man element there, even if they weren't the focus of the episode. The best laid plans sometimes, you you know, but uh, I, I assumed from the start, you know, the show was going to go five or six or ten years, you know. So it was always like, uh, oh, this is great. We can do this later on. And, you know, when all of a sudden there were no more episodes and they weren't even going to show episode 40, it was kind of uh, a little disappointing. So how close did episode 40 come to being produced? The script, I believe, was final, which means it would be... It, they weren't. They wouldn't spend money on a script or me to if they had no intention of producing it. Um, I don't know if it was supposed to be the last episode of that season or the first episode of the next season, but um, more likely the latter, the first episode of the next season. And um, I, I really don't know if they did storyboards or not. Um, some of your um, listeners or yourself might know more about that than me. But you know the produ- the way the production works on these on these shows is basically the script is done and it gets turned over to the artists and they start um, actually then it goes to the actors and they record the voices and almost simultaneously the artists start storyboarding it hopefully after they get the voice track so they can you know express the sort of uh, the way the lines are delivered a lot of people think that you know the voices are added later but actually they're it's just like a TV script you hand them the script, they read it, it goes to the board guys, they draw um, based upon, you know, the intonation of, of the actors and also what's in the script. Um, so I don't know if they had recorded the voice track, which would have been the first step after the script. Somebody probably has the answer to that, though. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not me, so it's not. It's not me either, uh, I know. <laughs> so you touched on some subjects that you were going to... Um, cover you know with Randor going to the Spondos and maybe the likes of the Masters you know being exiled from the palace Mm -hmm. Um, but could you clarify what you had planned for season 3 if you did have anything you know majorly planned okay refresh me the um, we ended uh, we did 
two seasons or three? Uh, we did two you did seasons. Two, two seasons. The last episode was, uh, the last image of it was Zodak flying away in his chair. Um, basically, uh, King Hiss had been killed um, and thrown down, and the snake men all, basically all ran off, right. so to speak. Yeah, I get confused because I remember episode 40, but I you know, I get confused with the fact that we, that wasn't actually produced. But whatever happened, did they, at one point they all busted out of prison. Were they locked up by Zodak and all that in the uh, Eternia prison? It's, it's, unfortunately, it's been a while since I've read <laughs> the episode 40 comic, so um, I think Man at Arms was almost going to get turned into Snake Man again. Um, yeah. Kind of something similar to what happened in one of the other episodes. Yes, he does. He does. I believe in episode 40, Man at Arms start, starts to get affected and he would have um, gone to the dark side at least for a while. I believe in episode 40, they busted out the Snake Men. I think Skeletor retook his power. You know, uh, Skeletor was kind of... Uh, the, the Snake Men sort of took over in a way, and Skeletor was sort of held down, right? And then mm-hmm. I believe yeah. by episode 40, Skeletor would have gotten back his power, but he had made a pact with the devil sort of thing with Hordak, and we would have had Hordak's return, basically and um, how that power struggle would have um, played out. Would he um, trump Skeletor? Would they be you know, rivals? I think probably Skeletor would have taken over Eternia. Hordak would have come back, and there might have been a struggle there. Meanwhile, the Masters are trying to come back and retake the kingdom, and He-Man's trying to free Randor from Despondos. Now, whether all those things would have played out at the same time or not, I'm not sure. I... I, I pretty strongly feel that the snake men would have had their day and would have um, been gone after <laughs> for, you know, I mean, there might have been one or two of them in exile, but I think basically yeah. they would have no longer been as big the uh, antagonist. I mean, I love Skeletor. I, you know, I, I think it's great. Um, you know, he's a great villain, and everybody else is sort of, uh, you know, second fiddle in a way, no matter how fierce they are. And Hordak is probably infinitely stronger than Skeletor. I think we just know and love Skeletor as a villain. Did you come up with any ideas for episodes that you abandoned during development at all? That is a great question, and try to say, <laughs> you know, I, I I have the feeling, and again, going back about ten years, I have the feeling that elements of things that we wanted to do found its way into everything because at hmm. the pace we were writing, I mean, there was a break between the first and second third seasons, Um, but otherwise it was a real pressure cooker, and you know, everything I think that I would want in there would be in there, and probably everything that Mattel wanted would hopefully be in there in some version. You know, a lot of times the toy, the episodes that seem more toy-driven were not necessarily because Mattel said, we want this to be a toy-driven episode, they just said basically we want this armor to be in this somehow. And from a writing point of view, I can't just, you know, have him go into a, a closet and try on the armor. Hey, look <laughs> at me, ha ha, you know, and then go on with the story. To me, it's sort of like, it's, sort of, it's better to build an episode and make that organic to it rather than, you know, make it obviously contrived. I mean, whether the fans can see through that or not, for me, for, for a writer, it doesn't mean anything that we want to feature this toy that we want to sell. I, I still have to tell a story. And, um, you know, so I need to know what what the good guy wants, what the bad guy wants, you know, and if this p- 
particular thing as a vehicle by which to get there, great. That's, again, going back to machines and men, I think that's, that's why I had the most problem with that, because I just could not figure out why you put a gladiator, you know, a guy in a loincloth inside armor, just seems like a, you know, robot battle or something, or Transformers or something like that. But, you know, I think we did a, a good job with that, ultimately, because, you know, they did win an Emmy for sound, so, you know, even if people just enjoy the sound, and it was a cool design, and I know The Island was another episode that a lot of people didn't like. I thought, you know, to me, I loved, I loved that Clawful had that, you know, clicking language or whatever, however yeah. they signaled, and they did this sort of, uh, I think we talked about it being like uh, 101 Dalmatians, where they sort of have this sort of uh, chain of uh, barking dogs that kind of. And we we <laughs> yes, sort of did yes. that with the uh, the clawful race, but they they <laughs> they they transfer the message across the ocean, and those things are always fun to put in. And uh, you know, so a lot of episodes that maybe weren't fans' favorite. You know, I have certain favorite parts of or. I knew what we were trying to do, and maybe we didn't quite succeed, or maybe we did. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, we also know it served a purpose. We needed this episode in order to set up things that are going to happen later. So I think everything sort of fell into the arc in some way or another, even if they were standalones. There was always an element that enriches the character or furthers the arc, or hopefully both. Okay. Um, did you ever read uh, the fan feedback with regard to the episodes? Yeah, Absolutely absolutely, on heman.org and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was really fun to do, you know, and funny in a lot of, in a lot of ways. I mean, I was once over at Mike Young's where the artists were well, reading them after an episode aired, and I would certainly read them, and uh, sometimes I would read them before the episode aired on the West Coast out here, because it would air on the East Coast first, so three hours earlier I could read the fan uh, feedback. The, the thing that always sort of... Uh, amused me just because, and it's not, not to really make fun of everybody, because, you know, people don't realize the process. By the time an episode comes on the air and, you know, a fan will say, well, they should use that character more, or I hope next episode <laughs> they change. I mean, that was nine months ago that we wrote the episode, yeah. and probably 30 more are already being animated. There's no way to change anything. So it's sort of like we're sort of locked in. And, you know, just just on a related note, just animation in general, I, just to um, give sort of credit to everybody who works in it, I mean, unlike live action or sitcoms or anything like that where you could do a pilot episode or three episodes, see what characters are breaking out, see which ones catch on, on animation you pretty much have to commit right from the get-go, this is going to be our show, and we're not going to get any feedback for like a year and by then it's going to be too late. So you really have to <laughs> you have to choose wisely. It's sort of like an arranged marriage. You know, you better pick the wife or husband well because you're stuck with them kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, the fans, I mean, I love reading what people thought. Um, I, I realized how passionate people were about it, you know, people who grew up with it or people who were comparing it to the old series. And, um, you know, sometimes it was a little hurtful, I think, to the artists and maybe myself, but just that people would sort of um, act like, you know, the original series was the, the gold standard and, you know, we were cheapening it somehow or not being true to it or doing this or that. And, you know, I can't even tell you how much the artists and, and writers, of course, cared about, you know, what we were doing and always yeah. 
wanted to respect the old fans, but also knew that, you know, the 30,000, you know, 30-year-olds around the world are not going to make a hit show. So we wanted to respect the property, but, you know, move it more into the graphics and the, the design and the attention span and the storytelling sophistication of uh, a modern audience. You know, it was a very, it was a very difficult line to tread between Mattel's concerns, pleasing the old fans, getting new fans, appealing to kids, being edgy, and having, you know, very little time and a lot of ways to do it. So, yeah, we definitely, I definitely read the fans' um, feedback, and I was amazed at, you know, how much more knowledgeable they were about stuff than I was as far as doing <laughs> Yeah. Uh, some people would also say, you know, if you send a bike, you know, you're trying not to hurt, you know, or take anything away from the original one. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would probably say that about, you know, the intro, whenever Adam starts talking like he did in the original cartoon and then gets interrupted, but then it's showing that, you know, it's more, more action-packed and more action in it than there was in the previous one mm-hmm. if that would make any sense yeah I mean it, it's it's not a slam on the other one there, there is a couple things one it's saying you guys who know the show you know how this intro goes now we're now we're gonna you know it's sort of a wink at the old fans if anything and the other thing was basically they had time constraints they couldn't do the whole monologue they, had, mm-hmm. they said you have X amount of seconds 20 seconds so I think the artist, and I wasn't involved with that particular decision, but the artist or Mattel or whatever said, let's sort of make it sort of a wink and sort of a, a joke at the same time. We could trim seconds out of the thing. We'll start the preamble and then we'll sort of say, boom, you know, this is, uh, you know, reboot 2002. But there was never, there was never a sense of, you know, throwing the past away. But it, I think the sense was more that let's respect you know the stuff that came before but let's not be tied down to it mm-hmm. you know if we can use the term um, you know something they find in a cave that relates back to the the diamond eye of disappearance or whatever it was yeah uh, the diamond, the, ray of diamond ray you know let's let's mention it as sort of a MacGuffin just something that's in this episode but doesn't really follow the necessarily the thread of the old series but for the old school fans, they'll know what it is. And this was stuff that Ian Richter would feed me, you know, you know, the Corridite crystals. So, you know, I said, what the hell is a Corridite crystal? And he would say, <laughs> well, that's what they use in the Diamond Ray of Disappearance. Take another look at that. You know, so I would, I would look at it. But I really, uh, you know, from a writing point of view, I couldn't really be tied down to um, anything from the old series. And the other thing that amused me was when people would say stuff like that, uh, the Teal story with the sorceress, the ties that bind, you know, was a re a remake of X episode from the original series. I, you know, I could I can tell you that nothing was a revamp of anything from the original series. From my from my knowledge or from my point of view, it was just basically I think there are there are stories that the char- you know by the nature of the characters you you will any writer or any team of writers will eventually come upon like if if Adam becomes He-Man but people think out Adam's a coward and He-Man inevitably you'll have a story where Adam feels the pressure that you know that he's yeah. either jealous of his alter ego or he wants to come clean or he's uh, you know tired of being the hero you know Superman will do that in every other action adventure or uh, 
mythic story will do that. So I think it's just natural. Tila, obviously, if she had a connection to the sorceress, we would do a story of, you know, how that connection played out. Yeah, I can I can say without hesitation that there was never anything that we said we were going to re reinvent or redo uh, an original uh, story from the original series. Okay. Um, since we covered fan feedback, I have a question from a fan, um, TJ Green, who's a, a loyal listener of the Master Universe Chronicles. So he actually sent me a question um, for you to answer. So he would like to know um, that you were at the writing helm for two amazing episodes, um, Ties That Bind and His and My personal favourite The Last Stand essentially The Last Stand appears to be a 30 minute battle scene so how were you able to write and edit this so the episode didn't appear redundant or overdone the last I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the ties with Biden in a second but the, the last stand just refresh me this, this was after the two Council of Evil episodes yes it is yeah yeah, I, this is I, the one where all the, the they're all in uh, Snake Mountain and Moss Man frees them, and then uh, Zodak helps the sorceress. Yeah, first of all, I believe that that was originally intended to be the last episode of the of that season, but as it turned out, it was the first episode of the next season. Is that correct? And Sorry, um, yeah. it it was meant as a trilogy, regardless. You know, Council of Evil one, two, and um, Last Stand three. Last thing would have been the third. It could have easily been Council of Evil number three. I think basically, I I don't remember all the action part, but as far as the um, what was most impactful to me is what is the worst. You know, always you want to say what is the worst situation you can put your hero in, and in this case, it's stripped of his powers with every badass in the universe coming <laughs> at him, and basically, you know, it's it's sort of like. You know what could be worse than all the villains coming at you, and you don't have your powers, and that's basically the bind that I wanted to put him in. And then, how does he get out of it, and maybe work backwards from there? But basically, that was that was the thing that I loved the most—that he was sort of um, left there, and I guess um, Orko gets him back his sword. It was basically, yeah. I, I mean, I remember with that big battle in front of. Castle Grayskull. There was a lot of back and forth trying to figure out how do you. Um, it's, it's always a challenge when you've got simultaneous character uh, ba- characters are battling simultaneously. Sort of like you have to show these two battling, but what's going on over here, and how do you show that in a linear way that implies that all the action is overlapping? And I think, as I recall, there was sort of like a hierarchy of attack, like. I think Evelyn and Count Marza sort of melded their powers together to kind of blast at him or something like that. After yeah, he got and his then Skeletor back. joins in as well, yeah. Yeah, it was sort of like, how can we amp up, once he gets his sword back, how can we amp up the uh, the thing? And the other thing I remember, I believe it was from this episode, was um, Skeletor taunting Adam, like Adam saying... Um, Something. Uh, yeah, he says I'm, scared, and it goes like, "Oh, petrified." Petrified, and didn't Skeletor say something like, um, oh, "But you're good at stealing things that don't belong to you, such as like, yeah, just like, like father, your father, like son." Yeah, yes. and that meant a lot to us, at least from the, you know, from fleshing out the characters, because we always felt that Randor had a real beef, and that I don't think we ever got to put it in the series. But he really felt like the ascension to the throne was his rightfully because he was Randor's half-brother, and we would have explored that more 
in, in later episodes, but basically he felt like he had a beef with Randor, and um, he should have been the king, and for whatever reason, because he did, you know, criminal acts or something, he didn't get he didn't get the throne. But when he says that, you know, just like father, like son, I think the line was, basically he's saying, you know, I'm bitter, and, you know, I'm an evil villain, but, you know, this is all based upon, you know, some wrong that, rightly or wrongly, he felt was done to him. Which reminds me, that is probably... That episode we talked about that we never got to do, the two of them as kids, where um, Keldor either would make a deal with the devil kind of thing, probably Hordak, or um, do something evil, maybe try to poison their father, you know, something that would sort of plant the seeds that he was the bad seed kind of thing that would later play out when we open at the beginning where Keldor and, and Randor are sword fighting. So, yeah, we wanted to explore more their their childhood uh, a bit. But going back to The Last Stand, yeah, I, uh, it was... Um, actually, it wasn't as hard as probably Council of Evil 1 or 2 where there was that mm-hmm. ridiculous fight in the uh, among all the Masters and all the uh, and all Skeletor's guys. Skeletor yeah. basically... Yeah. I think the idea behind that was Skeletor basically wants to throw his, his, his team to the wolves to kind of let, you see, it's all starting to come back now, so that the good guys would let down their guard and think, you know, all the criminals have been locked up, let's go on vacation, basically. And <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. you know, leaving, you know, Skeletor really was cunning in this, leaving it all sort of open. He'd get these new supervillains, toss his guys to the wolves, and then, uh, you know, it, just the dynamics of it were, were big. But the artists, really went to town on that battle on, uh, I believe it was Council of Evil 2, where there was just that humongous battle in the in the trenches there um, that seemed to go on for a long time. It was just a lot of fun. You know, that's something that's scripted, but a lot of times, you know, the artists will play it out. If you say, you know, Clawful and uh, Man-at-Arms get into a duel by the big boulder, and, you know, Clawful knocks Man-at-Arms to the ground... Matter Arms jumps up, blasts the Clawful, who smashes into a mountain and gets buried in debris. I mean, that may be, that's pretty detailed, but the artist may take that and play it out for, you know, two minutes, just having fun with that particular battle sequence, just as an example. I'm not saying that particular one. But, um, okay. you know, in animation scripts, you do things that are looked down upon in, um, say, movies, movie writing, where you... I won't say you direct on the page, but you really do. You say close up on this. You say you don't just say they battle, where you would say in a live action movie. You would, you'll actually say he does a spinning kick and impacts this guy's head, and then we do a close up on Man at Arms' hand. And you know, a lot of times you'll you'll be that you'll be that um, specific. The idea being that it's being handed off to a storyboard artist. Hopefully, they can take the intention of the scene and make it better. But you have to assume you don't know who's going to be handed off that. That so you write it as specific as you can, and you mm-hmm. you know if they can make it better, great. But even if they didn't have a thought in their head, and of course that wasn't true of this team. But mm-hmm. d- just from a writing point of view, that's how I've been trained. That you give them something to draw, and if they can make it better, great. Yeah, as long as it doesn't take away from the intention of the scene. Moving on from that, you want to talk about Ties That Bind for a second? Yes, certainly. Go on ahead. Okay, Love to so hear you. you like that episode? 
Yes, yes. Okay, so that that one is probably my favorite. To me, it was the most meaningful. Um, I, I think I've said this before, maybe Comic-Con, but I was actually going through a lot with um, my dad was actually very sick then. He actually died uh, a few months later during the, uh, you know, while we were writing the scripts, and I had to go back to New York and still had the uh, the early part of the series going on, and I was trying to story edit and do my dad's funeral, but um, not... I'm not. Uh, I'm not trying to be uh, <laughs> sappy here, but uh, just no, as, no. <laughs> just as in my own internal things, because these were going on, and I had a young daughter at the time, my own kid, and I was seeing my dad sort of um, going downhill, and my daughter thriving, and it was just uh, it was very impactful to me the relationship between a father and son, uh, in this case, a father and daughter, and and the parent, you know, parent to child, basically. So I think, to me, there was a lot of um, emotion in that, um, you know, denying that someone is your child, what it's like to be um, to um, be separated from your child and all that kind of stuff. And I think in the script, it was sort of um, where Man at Arm confronts um, the sorceress and says, you don't care about her, the child. Um, Tila and sorceress says, you know, I care so much my heart is breaking or whatever it is. And then she lets out a scream. And, and the animation, the way it ended up in the cartoon was, you know, I think she may scream, but the way it was in the script was she lets out this wail that, you know, pretty much shatters crystals, and you pull back to the entire universe almost, and it's, you know, the saddest scream in the world of, you know, the mother's heartbreaking for the kid. So it was, it, it, it was very impactful to me, you know, personally, and, you know, plus I thought it was a cool story. The other influence for that, um, script was I, I've been watching some Kurosawa stuff um, you know he's the guy who did uh, the original uh, you know Rashomon and the Seven Samurai and all the samurai movies anyway in the movie The Seven Samurai which is a very long movie basically the movie starts with the bad guys kind of coming over a ridge looking down at a village saying uh, the corn is not yet grown we'll be back in the, in the spring to, to destroy them kind of thing and I love the idea that in that brief scene he'd set up the entire dynamics of the movie so when I was writing the ties of Bind, I wanted to start in the middle not show a lot of leading up to it basically Tila Tila's been injured what's going on you know we got to get her to the castle and it was all within one page it sort of yeah. set everything in motion without a lot of let's have a battle let's see why Tila's injured you know that wasn't important it was sort of like I just wanted to get to the uh, to the thing and um, I just loved the idea of Tila sort of having this vague idea that she's connected to the sorceress and then I believe that's one where she gets psychic powers and she reads the mind of um, some of the masters is that the yes, one? Yeah. Where she yeah, she re- yeah. <laughs> and so we knew that Mechanic's Lament was coming up so we wanted to plant the seed of he, she's reading each of their each of their yes. thoughts and he's like why do I have such lousy powers kind of thing and <laughs> yeah. again that was almost a Wizard of Oz kind of moment where Dorothy's in bed and the three guys are standing around her I, I always mm-hmm. draw on the Wizard of Oz for visuals just because I think it's a perfect story you know for kids but also a perfect mythic thing and then there's the thing where Adam has this thing in the hallway with Man at Arms which I can't remember exactly what it was but that was another really yeah, it was cool. a case of um, he couldn't go in there because if she read his mind then he, she would know that he was He-Man but Man at Arms had had training tied <laughs> his right. thoughts and he says oh that explains a lot something along those lines right exactly 
That's right. I'd forgotten specifically. That's right. Yeah. So there was a lot going on. The idea that she could read his mind, but man at arms was, you know, a lot more stoic. And and that mm-hmm. now that you mention it, that probably was the genesis of the Decker episode, thinking that man at arms had been trained in some kind of ninja, you know, secret battle skills that had its own sort of, uh, you know, line of descent. So what would have happened? Well, his his uh, his mentor would be on some island somewhere, you know, and it might have been even a Yoda thing now that I think about it further, because when we first meet Yoda in Star Wars, he's sort of all by himself in a cave somewhere, you know, he's sort of retired, and I think that might have played into it too, that Decker was retired, you know, basically he trained Man-at-Arms, and now Man-at-Arms is coming back to his mentor. And then ties it by, I believe, out of the past, and I'm not sure we did the third episode, but it was sort of a trilogy in that that was sort of a continuation of it in a way Tila finding out even more about her um, connection to the sorceress where the villagers mistake her for the sorceress because she's yes. so similar when the sorceress had given up her throne to come down among the mortals and stuff and that was a very sort of um, Greek myth kind of thing um, where you know Zeus or whoever um, but anyway, you know, where one of the gods or even Hercules steps down from their exalted position to take their their place among the mortals, kind of thing, and uh, and of course, out of the past featured the uh, the wounded soldier. <laughs> We're not sure if it's Man at Arms or um, Fisto, and uh, again, that was one where we backtrack and we thought, hmm, this is interesting. We think it's Man at Arms, but what if it's Fisto who betted? Um, the sorceress, and um, I, I can't give you the specific answer because I'm not sure we we decided, but um, we definitely wanted to leave it open to the fact that Fisto could have been Tila's dad. What did you particularly enjoy about working on the series? What I loved from the writing point of view was that we could do these big arcs, that we could um, have the luxury of planting a seed and sort of... Uh, you know, having it sprout a few episodes later or backtracking and laying some pipe, as we call it, for something that will later sort of organically happen. But you say, oh, that must have been what they talked about a few episodes back. I love the, the plotting sessions with Ian and Rob from Mattel and then from Gary, Gary, you know, the director, of stuff that we could do or stuff we'd love to do and stuff that... And actually get to do them. I mean, we talked about, you know... Um, stuff like uh, Hordak, how we were going to see him, and we talked about King Grayskull for a long time before we ever did it, and I'm sure there's stuff we talked about we never got to do, like the Spondos and the Exile, but it was so great to have this palette, mythic palette, you could get as mythic and epic as you want in animation, you know, to blow up a city doesn't cost any more design-wise than to, you know, hit somebody with a sword. You know, yeah. you, can, you can cheat it, you can use special effects, you can, you know, animation-wise, it's, it's just the drawing, assuming you don't have to draw every person in that city. So you could really be as big as you want it to be. You could build a, a castle, you know, a thousand feet high, it's just as easy as 20 feet high. And um, so, you know, we weren't restricted by adult themes, I don't think. We got very, I thought we got very sophisticated in the themes, you know, not that you use particularly, you know, sophisticated language, but I think the themes were very um, mythic and universal. So I loved 
that and being able to do the you know the action adventure stuff married with the sort of epic quality and then to build in the sort of real life lessons I think um, I think every episode really had I'm not talking about the morals at the end I'm just talking about something that was truly heartfelt that you know somebody discovered about themselves that they um, you know the nature of evil um, you know you have you have the strength inside yourself you know everybody's got their place everybody's got a job that's worthy and you know uh, I think all the, all those were um, always on our minds you know we would talk about the action story and the emotional story and there's always an emotional story in there and you really you really need that from a writing point of view and I think this show really gave us the opportunity to do that um, the other thing was of course the fan base was you know knowing that unlike many other shows you don't know if anybody's out there basically you knew going into it that there were people at least a core group of people who are going to look at this and, you know, enjoy it or scrutinize it or both or hate it. But it, w it was going to be, you know, it's part, you're part of a mythos, you know, and a, a canon, you know, the, uh, to use that word, um, that means something to people's childhood and to their adulthood. And so it's sort of a responsibility in a way. You don't, you know, sort of like the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. That was sort of my, my thing. I don't. If anything, I don't want to hurt this franchise, and mm -hmm. you know, at best, you know, we could take it into a whole new level. But it was certainly, um, you know, it, it was just really fun. I mean, I, and that's probably a word I should have thought of first. It was, it was just a lot of fun. I mean, I, you know, we would make all kinds of jokes about, you know, Ram Man and He Man and you know, whatever uh, uh, lurid jokes about Tila and and and, and Evelyn and all that kind of stuff, but you know, it was all in the context of laughing, but also loving what you're working on. And I think mm -hmm. you do that in anything. Usually, actually, it's usually the really kitty programs like uh, Winnie the Pooh that you make the nastiest jokes just for your sanity. <laughs> but, but um, I, I mean, I love the fact that I could, you know, I always had this idea. For instance, that Tila, she's got that long hair. I would love to chop it off sometime, you know, just because. It looks like it could be a real problem for a warrior. So, <laughs> so I think it was out of the past where we got to do that, where she basically somebody throws something at her that sort of pins her by her ponytail, and she's yeah. got to lop it off. And then knowing you have the luxury in the next episode that the artists are going to have her with shorter hair, you know, because mm -hmm. in the last episode, and you know, the average person watching it wouldn't know or care, but people who are watching it carefully would. So that stuff was a lot of fun, knowing that we can get to do it, that there would be people who picked up on it, and that, you know, we had Mattel really sparing no expense as far as, you know, the quality of the animation and, you know, mm -hmm. the music. And, I mean, they save money on my salary, obviously, but, you know, you gotta get, you got to make your savings somewhere. But, you know, just the <laughs> fact that they were, they were going to do this, you know, really do it, you know, first class and give it absolutely the best airing they could and and I think they did I think the episodes you know I looked at a couple last night and I think they really hold up and some of the stuff I say wow I, that, that was really cool you know and I look at it from a little more distance now because when when you write the script and then you later see the episode the first time you're more cringing because you say oh man I thought that line was funnier than that or they cut that out or they didn't pay that off but now when I look at it from a distance just as a show I thought man the artwork it's really phenomenal, and the music and the 
you know, boarding and animation and the the voice actor. You know, it's just it's a really cool thing. Okay, well, you touched on earlier on that Ties of Bind was one of your favorite episodes. Yeah. Um, but looking back over the entire series, uh, which other episodes would be your favorite or stood out more than others? Well, I, I really like Lessons. I thought that was great. I watched it last night. And again, it's not one that I was very involved with because that was that one in Skywar. Like I said, I was sort of in limbo. But I thought Dottilio did a really nice job with Ian sort of um, riding shotgun over it. Um, of, you know, just uh, the visuals I thought were really cool. And I think Larry Dottilio brought a real element of magic and the old school kind of um, yeah. imagery and stuff to the stuff that, um, you know, we could have probably done more of. Uh, I think we were more involved with more action rather than the the fantasy thing that w- maybe we could have played up a little more. I thought that was a really good episode. I thought the Steve Melching episodes were really good. The Snake Man, he did, I believe, the first Snake episode. And then we said, man, we should have him write the two-parter that where the Snake Man arose again. And then when we got to the, the last season where we're doing a lot of Snake episodes you know Melching was another kid who grew up with He-Man so he knew that world pretty well so he was he was a good writer and really you know really knew the stuff you know I did I I like the Council of Evil and The Last Stand a lot those three and The Courage of Adam I liked a lot because it was it was coming off the pilot and we got a chance all of a sudden after all the history and you know the origin of the character all of a sudden to bring it down to a personal story basically who is our hero what is he feeling and uh, you know what kind of bind has he gotten himself in basically and that's um, you know basically him being jealous of He-Man in a way and still not being thought of as brave on his own right which um, you know sort of the Clark Kent kind of uh, problem sort of like he's the weakling but Clark Kent it was sort of voluntary in Adam's case it was sort of thrust upon him and now that he's got this responsibility, you know, he's the strongest man in the universe. He can't even tell everybody, anybody because they yeah. see him turning tail when he needs to transform. So I <laughs> I think I like that one a lot. Um, gosh, there, there's just so many. I mean, I, I, I know that there's parts of every episode that I absolutely love, um, you know, for whether it's the way the battle turned out or what we reveal about a character or... Even the you know Mechanic's Lament I thought was a lot of fun because it uh, you know it really just had humor and all kinds. Of, I mean we cut out I can't even tell you like practically <laughs> the whole middle of the story due to length. You know basically I think in that one he he gets the powers from uh, was it Marzo he got the powers from I can't remember. Yeah, uh, he goes to get Marzo's amulet and then he's been transformed by the elders. So once he gets his amulet, then becomes the way he used to be yeah there was a whole middle section of be careful what you wish for kind of thing where he gets powers mm-hmm. and then they sort of backfire or something And uh, but I think we had to cut out a whole big chunk in the middle but right. yeah I can't, I can't remember specifically what state and what <laughs> came out but a, a good third of the script but for somehow it still worked but um, I just wanted to you know you like to get your character into trouble you know, wanting something and then having it sort of backfire and then find out that, you know, they're better off before. But in this case, it worked because it was really 
the emotional story was still there. Um, the Shadow Beast was fun just because of, you know, that we were doing it in darkness and what would that imply. And I think we had um, somebody with a fear of the dark. So it's always fun to have a big, strong character have this sort of vulnerability, you know, whether it's Indiana Jones being scared of snakes or, you know, that kind of thing. It's always, you know, you look for those things. It just enriches everything. Um, there are many. There's too many. many. Well, you know, there it's it's like name your favorite child. You know, this one. Was, <laughs> yeah. You know, this That's one was harder. To, said as well. So this one was harder to birth. You know, this one was a dream <laughs> child from the start. This one took a lot of work, but it turned out okay. This one was so horrible that I'm glad he he stayed out of jail. I mean, you know, you, you get you get so many pleasures from from different things. You know, sometimes you get pleasure that that the artwork made something that was okay really good sometimes you get pleasure with the fact that the artwork didn't attract what you had in mind and maybe added to it so it's it's just so you know there's so many variables in uh in every kind of in every kind of filmmaking but in animation especially because you know i hand it off with my sort of idea on the script the storyboard guys and the voice actors you know are pretty faithful to it and fully add a lot more to it. Then it goes overseas, and that becomes sort of a wild card because that's where they animate it. They can really, you know, make it fantastic, or they can make it look cheesy. You know, I don't, I don't think anything came out particularly cheesy in this series, but you know, there's always that worry. So you're always yeah. grateful that something comes back. You say, "Whoa, that's amazing." Um, are there any specific characters that, looking back, you would have liked to used more? Probably not. I would say, if anything, we brought in a lot of characters, you know, uh, you know, stink words and stuff. And I think that was the right way to do it. I wanted to focus on our core characters the first season to sort of explore some of their origins. And then I didn't mind the idea of bringing on these characters. When um, Obviously, if we would have brought Hordak back, we would have explored him and his team more. So that, mm-hmm. that I sort of um, maybe regret. No, I think uh, I was pretty satisfied with with the characters we had. You know, it was a little dizzying to me because, like I said, I didn't have a huge background in the show, and I was learning a lot of it on the fly. Zodak, he was, um, you know, he was he was somebody who was mysterious, so we, you know, we didn't quite know the extent of his powers. But I think we we used him pretty well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we would probably do more later on, but. You know, he's one of those that you probably don't want to go to that often because he is that powerful and uh, could sort of set the balance off a little bit. I liked what you know. I liked that we did a lot of focus on Tila and um, Evelyn because I, I just thought those were really fun characters. I like the women characters a lot. They're just uh, really fun to write for. Okay. So finally, where can people find your work and what are you currently working on? Ah. Uh, what am I working on? Well, coincidentally, I'm working on something with Mattel. Um, I've kept doing stuff for them through the last 10 years, you know, off and on. Um, I'm doing a, a direct-to-DVD for them for an action-adventure thing that I can't really mention, but it's a Mattel franchise that's very big in Latin America and here, too, but especially in Latin America, and people who know it will know it and those who don't know but anyway 
I, I just, I mean, it's been, I was, uh, up until last year, I was at Disney for uh, about three years, and I was exclusively working on um, my friend's Tigger and Pooh, which is uh, about as far from He-Man as you can get, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, which was a reboot of the Pooh thing. I guess my curse or, or blessing is, is to always be sort of um, given these beloved franchises and, you know, don't destroy them. Um, I, I was staff writer on my friend's Tigger and Pooh. I wasn't the story editor or head writer, but, um, you know, that was uh, it was a lot of fun because I always loved the Pooh characters. And, you know, I say it's far from He-Man, but actually in a lot of ways it's not in that you still have, you know, the Pooh characters are just very iconic. They have very specific reactions to events and stuff and you know that's always the characters that are the most fun to write for you know what they want you know how they're going to react and you the more you know how a character will react or what they like or don't like the easier it is to generate stories because you just frustrate whatever they like you know if Pooh likes honey you know right away separate him from his honey if he man needs <laughs> if he man needs a sword separate him from his sword and you've got a story and that's you know to any aspiring writers out there um that's if you're ever trying to um generate stories i would say don't think of battles if it's action adventure don't think of plots particularly if it's comedy think of your characters and think of what they want get to know what they want and then frustrate that or push their buttons um I always use the example like uh, All in the Family, which I guess was based on a British show, Steptoe and Son, or no, no. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's basically the lead character is a racist, right? We have Archie Bunker. That's the that was the character in the in the American version, and so he's a bigot. So what do you want to do? Lock him in an elevator with Sammy Davis Jr. and uh, <laughs> and then have Sammy Davis Jr. kiss him somewhere in the episode is a sort of joke, but you know that's sort of an example of what a character, what they don't like, or what their bigotries are, or their fears, or whatever, and then you put them up against it, and that is the essence of all drama and comedy, which is conflict, and the best conflict is not a fight that's predicated just on, you know, you're the good guy, we're the bad guy, we're two armies, it's like, what does each character want, what are their goals, and, um, you know, if you have that, then you've, you've got flesh and bone on uh, you know flesh and blood on the bone that when a battle happens you know what's at stake what it means to this character it's not just about you know sword play and stuff like that but i digress um there's stuff i've 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 wrote a few episodes for batman brave and bold which is a very well-regarded series here um sort of sort of old style batman harking back to sort of the brave and bold comic book I did some stuff for um, a show called Gaspard and Lisa, which is uh, actually an English company based on some French book for little kids. Uh, Penguins of Madagascar I did for Nickelodeon, which is based on the movie. It's a comedy series based on there. So I've been, uh, and I did some for Disney Art Online and Pixar for, um, I just did a punch-up for their um, Cars website, um, just or some comedy show. And right now, I'm finishing up the Mattel thing, but I'm also working on G.I. Joe, which is a, another reboot 
<laughs> that they're doing <laughs> here, um, Hasbro, and uh, but they're doing Hasbro and Discovery Channel kind of um, merged here in the states, and they're going to have their own network, and they're going to do GI Joe, and I believe Transformers maybe, and some other stuff. Um, so you know, old properties never die; they just get re uh, get rebooted, rebooted, and you work on them. <laughs> yeah, and I work on, and but it's been a very um, very difficult year since I left Disney the end of 2008 I guess it's been about a year and it's uh, with the uh, the state of the industry um, it's been very hard for a lot of artists and writers uh, these days to uh, just find work as everybody in every other industry knows you know it's just been mm -hmm. a rough worldwide uh, thing but things are picking up so um, you know I, before He-Man and after I've always been sort of a uh, a journeyman guy, you know, I would, uh, I did a lot of shows for Sony, I did Men in Black and Jackie Chan Adventures, Extreme Ghostbusters, usually I would not be on staff, I would still work out of my house, even though, even if I story it, I'd get 13 episodes or 26, it's still, I'd still work out of my home office and not really be around a lot of people. At Disney, I actually had an office for the last three years, and it, it was quite fun to go in and joke around with people and have a, a normal sort of nine to five-ish existence, but um, I'm also more used to working at home, making my own hours, and so, you know, I've been doing this about 25 years. It's been a good, it's, it's been a good fun, a good ride, but, you know, out of all the properties, you know, I've worked on, you know, there are always a few that stand out, and I would put He-Man in that category, absolutely, and um, it's definitely the only thing I've worked on that there was this kind of fan base, um, you know, where... Ten years after the last, you know, reboot of the show, there's still people interested in it and uh, are still debating it and stuff. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I, you know, I've never experienced that with other stuff, or the stuff was so young that you know people didn't really do posting about it and stuff like that. Well, Dean, it's been a pleasure. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to you talk about your experience uh, working with the. The Masters of the Universe and doing different episodes and stuff, and I know a lot of people will, uh, have enjoyed your your interview. As I could personally say, it's been a been a thrill and a joy to sit here and and listen to you. Well, it's been a real pleasure, Chris. I'm, 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 I thank you for um, asking me to do this, and um, a big hello to all the fans. And I'm really glad that you. Um, loved the show or hated it or were ambivalent or had your opinions I think that's fantastic um, and you know I love that the, the passion and you know the, the pleasure that it's brought to a lot of people I think it's great uh, that you're doing the show and uh, I hope uh, hope a lot of people listen and uh, keep listening because you're doing a great job Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, so that was Dean Stephan with his thoughts and his uh, views on the 2002 Mike Young production show. My name is Chris Vint, also known as Vinto Man, and until next time. Let the power return! <laughs> <laughs>